So I'm, I'm trying to make it happen again. Welcome everyone. We are, yeah, I think we're live. Welcome Chris to ATC office hours. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks for having me back. And I don't just mean the, the little, uh, the little quick, um, glitch that we had there. But yeah. It's good to be back on the show. It's good to be back on the show. And, um, you know, this has become sort of an annual thing now. I think this is three or four years, maybe we've done this and always yeah. right around the, the Thanksgiving holiday. So it's a little good way to end our year. And yep. Um, I, I checked the times that we'd done this or, or checked the dates that we talked previously. And I think in, um, I think in 2021 was the first year we did it and we did it, uh, within a day or two of this particular date. I think it was okay. just before Thanksgiving. Yeah. Last year, it, it was in early December. Um, okay. And I'm so glad to be able to review this with you now for the third year in a row in a public setting. This is a call that we... Actually, we had this call in 2020 uh, privately. I was up in Chiang Rai in northern Thailand, and uh, I'd driven all the way up there from southern Thailand. It's a two-day drive. And I, uh, I wasn't really able to leave Thailand in 2020. And I remember being uh, up there for a trail run, and I was so happy to review this with you. And we had a long, interesting conversation about the 2020 OM246 results. And then I thought, you know what? If I'm going to start doing more videos and podcasts and sharing this kind of information, this type of conversation and this type of review of what I do and what you do um, must be of interest to quite a few people. And so uh, we kicked it off in 2021 and this is the third year doing it. Well, it's a, it's a good recap too, because we, you and I have sort of a, a cadence that we maintain during the course of the year talking about this stuff and um, talking about both, you know, I think just general turf maintenance, but also what's what we're doing on the golf course. So um, you know, and, and from day to day, maybe not so much day to day, but week to week, month to month. And we're kind of going through this. And then we have, you know, the, the, um, we do the sampling at the end of the year and, and those reports come and then we, we can take a look at it and review it in this setting, but it's not, you know, it's not like that's the only time that we talk about it. That's right. I've put the chat up on the screen, uh, for anybody who uh wants to ask some questions you can chime in over there in in the chat and we will try to respond in time to the questions so um we're going to go through the report chris we're going to go through the om246 report and look at some of the key results but we might kick it off with a little bit of a story maybe a story from uh talking with john kaminsky at the masters tournament and me, of course, liking to talk about turf grass and, and new ideas or old ideas or rethinking uh, current or old ideas. And somehow we were talking about the way that you were managing, which now seems so normal to me. But a few years ago, it seemed a bit exotic to not punch any holes. And it seemed exotic to not uh, it's interesting how your mind changes about what's exotic and unusual and yeah. what is reasonable, but it, it seemed exotic, uh, to not be putting sand top dressing every, 
every couple of weeks. Um, and so we were talking about that with John Kaminsky, the uh, well-known turfgrass professor from Penn State University. And he gave a response that was very, uh, very typical, I think. Typical and, of John or typical of the industry? <laughs> well, typical of John to be able to get right to the point and to yep. be very direct. Right. Um, typical of the industry in, uh, in, in the way that people respond uh, when they first hear about this. And in fact, I, so, so I'll tell John's response and then, then kind of what I thought about it. So John said, uh, he said that might work this year or it might work for one year or i forget if he said if it might work uh for a couple months or if it might work for a year but he said but it but it won't work forever i don't remember that uh, that's that's how i recall it I i don't recall if it was um if he said, I don't remember the time frame that he mentioned, but I, I think you are correct. And and we kind of ran ran this subject around and up and down and left and right the, that during that particular week. And I, I do recall that there was some amount of time and maybe it was, well, that'll work this year. Or maybe it worked last year, but, you know, in the long run, it's, it's not going to work. Um, it can't work very well or it can't work forever. Um, and, you know, I think I think you and I felt even at that time, um, which is maybe two years ago or so, that mm-hmm. we were we that this was this was working pretty well, and there was no sign that um, <clears throat> it was going to become problematic in any sort of um, predictable time frame. But yeah, that so, was that was sort of the discussion. Yeah, and and he, you know, so so he was saying it'll work for a short time, mm-hmm. uh, but it it's it's not a way that you can actually manage the grass for the long term. And, and I was like, but we're doing it. Uh, it's, it's working and it's not, you know, it's not just, uh, at Hazeltine where, where you're implementing this, but there's other places around the world that are getting similar results. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I know that it works. Um, if, if you pay attention to some key measurements, but, uh, so, so it, my first response to that was like, oh man, he just doesn't get it. But then, then I thought, and I was like, you know what? I thought the exact same thing, like not, let's say from now, I would say going back 10 years ago, I would say in 2014, uh, 2013, that type of era, I would have thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I realized, well, there's nothing wrong with what he's saying. Uh, because I thought that myself not very long ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I was the same way. I mean, I can think back to committee meetings here at Hazeltine where I um, we were going through the golf schedule and, and this was surrounding events. Uh, I seem to recall leading up to the Ryder Cup, there was a discussion about, you know, skipping uh, an airification that year that typically would have been done in early August. And you know, I was just very cautious and very adamant with the, with the group and with the committee, like, okay, if we skip this this year, then we cannot skip it next year. We absolutely have to do it. We can't, you know, we cannot, but that was, that was, you know, the conventional wisdom 
speaking as opposed to the the knowledge i think that we've gained over the last four years speaking because now um next year we're going to host the us amateur and we are going to skip verification next year um leading up to the amateur and i i don't feel the need to say that to people um in fact i'm quite comfortable saying hey you know we'll just um we'll just do this in 24 2024 and come 2025 we'll we'll analyze the the data and we'll see what 2025 brings and um you know it's 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 uh it's worked very well and and those discussions with um with committees and decision makers at the club are are actually pretty easy to have um when you can back it up with information excellent well it looks like our our chat is working uh randy says hello six months out of the office the long waiting ends now i think randy's from joining us from bulgaria in europe this timing is 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 interesting because i think um it's going to be difficult for people in india or dif difficult for people probably in dubai uh that type of area mm -hmm. uh maybe diff it, th those time zones it's, it's not really a good time but we're i think it's evening in europe and i think it's what would it be afternoon in most of north america and it's early morning uh here in japan and Mr. Yawata is up quite early in Japan. Good morning, Yawata-san. Uh, so he's on Facebook. Randy's on YouTube. Looks like our chat is working. This is also going to be recorded as a podcast. Uh, so when we do show the report and talk about some of the charts, uh, we will try to describe those. Um, oh, Kea Keeper is also from Japan and is joining us uh, also at a very early hour. Uh, that, maybe that a bit is... of yeah, that's dedication because it's what almost it's maybe ten to five in the morning uh, in, in Japan. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yep, a lot of hard workers here. So, um, yeah, <laughs> the land of the rising sun. Yep, and Perfect. yeah, it's actually a good time in Australia too. Although I imagine Australian uh, greenkeepers or or uh, greenkeepers in New Zealand might struggle to join us live because it is late spring there and that's a very busy time and uh if it's morning and late spring i imagine they have a lot of work to do so um some of those people may be uh watching this on 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 the recording all right chris uh anything else before we jump into the report let's see jason says hi he's from nova scotia uh, Canada just finished blowout in sideways rain and snow. Lovely. So we have a global audience here. Yep. So yeah, we're covering a lot of ground at this point. So that's good. Okay. Uh, I'm, we... I'm ready. Let's dive in. Oh, okay. So we'll jump into the report. Uh, let's see. Let's just, let's give an intro to OM246 real quick first okay. for, uh, before we start looking at the report, just for anybody who doesn't, um, who who's not familiar with what we're talking about, do you want to do you want to explain OM two four six in your own words? Since okay. actually you're the one that came up with that witty witty hashtag. I am. I was sitting right in this chair. I recall we've maybe discussed this before, but for those who haven't heard, uh, we were sitting in my office during the twenty nineteen. 
KPMG Women's PGA Championship. And um, you were sort of developing or in the early stages of um, doing this testing with many of your clients, as I recall. And we were talking about uh, what OM246 is, is the total organic material. Correct, Mike? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. Total organic material measured in the zero to two centimeter depth, the two to four centimeter depth, and the four to six centimeter depth. And uh, I recall you asking me what what would be a good hashtag for this testing and for this information. And I recall um, quite quickly. Usually, I have to think about something like that, but quite quickly, I think I mentioned or I said to you, OM two four six would be sort of uh, would sort of um, make a lot of sense and uh that's that has stuck so um but but that's what it is and it's a it's a testing of the total organic material in those areas we do that testing actually the last few years we've been doing it twice a year um, we do one check of the zero to two centimeter depth in um, july and then we do another full check of the 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 two four and the six at the end of the growing season in early october and then, um, and I believe you're going to show it in a little bit, your report shows a time series of how those um, results look and, and how, they, how they come in over time. That's the very first uh, visual display of the results that I show in the reports mm -hmm. because I think that the time series is the most important thing to look at. And um, we have uh, Stephen... Uh, joining us in the evening from Scotland. Hello, Stephen. And Ufuk from Turkey. Wow, we have quite a global audience. So yeah. this is this is terrific. All right, Chris, I'm gonna I'm gonna see what the screen looks like when we pop up the report. And yeah, I'm gonna make it look like that. So okay. we've got uh, now showing on the screen a report that says Hazeltine National Golf Club report on total soil organic material by depth. Uh, dated October 25th, just almost a month ago. And Jeffrey Johnson, afternoon from Minneapolis. Hello, Jeffrey. Thank you for joining. You you got one of these reports too. Jeff, yeah, a recent OM246 uh, um what would the word, what would the right word be? Uh, client? He's, yeah, I, I think he's, he's got a client a, for you. He's got a three, yeah, he's got a three or four year time series. Okay, he does. Okay. I didn't, not so yeah. recent then. <clears throat> All right. So we, we go to the table of contents and I'm just going to click on. No, let's see. Let's just go. Here we are. All right. I'm going to make this even a little bit bigger, maybe. 200. That's too big. Maybe 200% looks good. So uh, I'm showing on the screen a chart that says total organic material time series. And it's got lines that are going from back in 2017. Uh... No, 2019, uh, 2019 up to 2023. So that's the 2019 season, 2020, 21, 22, 23. That's five seasons. And it's showing the 
total organic material right in the top two centimeters, which is 0.8 inches of the root zone. And if we just look at the line that's in orange, that is, uh, is showing the autumn results, which are kind of the, the year end, uh, official results for the OM246 for, for your site. It, it goes from 4.7 in 2000, uh, 2019 October, and it goes to 4.8% in October of 2023. So it's basically a flat line. Yep. And this is not... Uh, I'll let you describe some of the maintenance because I forget a little bit about what the maintenance was in 2019 and what it was in 2020 and what it was in 2021. I, I can remember in my head what it was in 2022 and 2023. But but the the thing is, you compare the maintenance work that was done with this timeline, and you also assess the playability. And those three things combined are incredibly powerful in leading to doing the right work and making sure you're putting enough sand or identifying opportunities where you might be able to cut back on the disruptive work. Right. Yeah, so I, I'll go through. Uh, so 2019, when we first did this testing, um, <clears throat> that was the year that we hosted the Women's PGA Championship. And we did the testing, We 4.7, you can see that number. And that year, we is the last year on this time series in which we did what, what I think most people would consider to be sort of a standard approach to putting service management. So we um, top dressed and I remember doing some top dressing in the spring that year because we had had a bit of an icy winter and there was a little bit of turf on the greens, that bent grass turf on the greens that was a little bit slow. I, I wouldn't call it winter kill, but it was just kind of a weird spring. And then the spring was cool and the spring was, and the grass was really slow in the spring. And so we did put out some sand prior to that event, which was in the third week of June. And we put the sand out, smooth, looking to smooth surfaces that maybe weren't ideal or weren't exactly where we wanted them to be. And it worked, it worked really well. Um, then throughout the rest of the season, we, we got into what I would call at the time was our typical approach. And my approach would have been a top dressing about two weeks before a major club event. And those events took place at the end of July, at the end of August, and then again at the end of September. So kind of spaced out nicely about one, one month apart throughout the rest of the year. And I recall that we put the top dressing sand down about the middle of July. And it, by that time it had gotten in Minnesota, it can get quite hot, it can get humid. And it was, it was warm and we were in what I would call kind of summer stress period. And we put that sand down and I immediately regretted it. Um, immediately in the days after we saw some skidding from the rollers. And um, you know, we're, no matter how careful you are, no matter how good you are at, uh, you know, no matter how good the operator is, no matter how much you try to get people to um, operate those machines in, in just the right way, when you have that sand on the surface, the roller, especially the types of rollers that we have, which is a uh, like a speed roller, I would call it. Ours are Toro, and you know, a smoothing roller on the front and a drive roller on the back. Those rollers, as as people will know, are prone to skidding on uh, on a sandy surface. And we had some of that. And at that time of year, 
as soon as you sort of damage that bent grass turf, that bent grass leaf tissue, you can see a real sharp decline in the quality of that surface. And we, we saw that in, in the summer of 2019. Um, and it was, it was quite bad in places, not nowhere where we needed to seed. It was all about letting the, the season, um, season go through, you know, just kind of let the summer go by. And then we recovered nicely as we went into the, the, you know, the fall, but it was, the conditions were in some places, especially high traffic areas were, were quite poor in some areas. And so that was kind of the last year that we did what I would call a, a traditional approach. Um, <clears throat> I don't recall the aerification that we did that year um, in the fall. I could look through pictures, I'm sure, and find examples of what we did. Maybe it was a dry jack, maybe it was um, some kind of a tining. I just, I don't recall it. But um, it was so usual, it was so normal to do that. Well, that's that you, right. You know that definitely you did something because you wouldn't have skipped it. We did. We wouldn't have skipped it. Um, and we definitely did something. And like you said, it's a that's a good point. Like it's it was so normal at that time to do something that I can't really think right now what that would have been. Um, but we did something. Um, so then 2020 comes and now everybody will know that that's the season of the of the, the COVID pandemic, you know, the, the main the beginning of it, you know, when, when there was so much uncertainty about uh, just everything. So we start the season, we had less staff, our staff numbers were way down for that 2020 season. Um, maybe we had a third less staff than what we normally would have had. Um, and I recall that when it came time to top dress, I just remember thinking to myself, well, this seems like a lot of work. We don't have as many people. And I can remember, you know, thinking to myself, okay, it's time to top dress. It's time to top dress. And one of my assistants, you know, said, oh, I think it's, you know, be good to get a top dressing down. And I thought, you know, I don't know that we need to. I just kept, you know, I was, by that time I was stimping, taking a stimp meter reading every day and the speed was fine. And the ball was rolling very nicely across the green. And I thought, you know why why put something down why make why make life more difficult for us with this with this sand and you know everything is tough right now uh let's just let's just keep going keep going so we did and you know the next month came and we maybe would have been ready to do some top dressing and we once again we decided not to do so and um you know by this point i'm starting to say you know hey this surface is really pretty good and we haven't put any top dressing down um the other thing i noticed was we were we were rolling the greens every we never had to take a break from a mowing or a rolling in the name of sort of stress reduction so the the what i talked about had happened in 2019 where we had seen decline after the rollers had skidded across sand we didn't see any of that i mean the, the greens were perfect edge to edge and we just kept kept rolling on no top dressing no top dressing and you know it just became obvious to me like the, these we're not seeing any decline in the in the leaf tissue we're not seeing any damage to leaf tissue any decline in the plant because we're not putting the sand on top and we're not rolling over sand golfers aren't walking over sand um and it was just um it, it was sort of a, a light bulb moment for me and meanwhile the, the playing conditions were continued to just be good every single day and um we got to the end of the year and we did the testing again and we saw that it had gone up a little bit and we put sand down as we typically do before the winter. Um, but that was the aha moment was that 2020 season. So since then, we have uh, continued that approach right through 2021. 
um, in, in getting back to aerification, we did aerify again in 2020. I remember it being a, a kind of a half inch solid tine with, with back backfilled with sand. So 20, then, 2020 did have that, that aerification. Event it did. Also. We did aerify and that was, that was in August and that was, so we didn't apply any sand as top dressing. We did apply sand when we, when we aerified. Okay. And then 2021, you did sand injection, which you thought, you know, I'm not even going to do conventional aerification. Correct. Yep. We did a sand injection in 2021 and, and, um, you know, the, the healing process didn't go the way we wanted it to. And there were, there were, it was nothing wrong with the, with this, the injection process. It was just, it just didn't go, it just didn't go the way we wanted it to. And, and that was when I started to think to myself, like, you know, what, what if we didn't, what if we didn't do this? So those numbers the that you see in the time series come after all that work is done. So they're at the end of the golf season. So any any work, any aerification that we did is included in that number. And we saw the number stay the same as the year before. And I thought, you know what? And 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 of course you and I are maintaining discussion, you know, about this at all times. And we started to think, well, what what if we didn't do an aerification in 2022? Um the, the membership had been sort of displeased, myself included, had been displeased with the, the 2021 process. And I thought, you know, what if, what if we don't do it in 2022? Let's, let's see what we can do. Let's work on, let's take all the data we've been taking, all the playing, playing condition data, all the, um, um, I think at that time we, by that time we were doing the bobble test as well. That was added to the mix. Um, and let's see what happens if we don't, if we don't do an aerification, if we don't put any holes in, if we don't backfill with sand, if we just um, do our winter top dressing program and um, and let that be the, the, the only bit of sand that goes down on these greens. Um, so that was leading into 2021 and you can see, or I'm sorry, 22, leading mm -hmm. to 22. And you can see the number kicked up a little bit in 22. So at that point we decided, uh, you know, among a few other adjustments, um, kind of growth of grass adjustments. We decided that in 2023, we would do another aerification, which we did, um, a solid tining backfilled with sand that was done in, in August of this year, um, of 2023. And, and the number ticked down just a little bit again. So, um, you know, like you, like you said, Mike, it's basically a straight line. Um, yeah. You know, if those you look at it over that much time, if yeah. you look at it over, four or five years it's basically a straight line which is a little bit surprising because before we started taking these measurements we would have thought that every year you need to put sand frequently to keep the surfaces firm from to keep the surfaces from getting puffy as as the season goes on and we would have thought that you'd need to put some sand down into the root zone to keep the organic material from accumulating too much because we have this idea in our minds whether it's from uh, school or whether it's from what we learn on the job or from what we learn in seminars that i think we have this idea that grasses are thatch producers grasses produce thatch and that all this work needs to be done to control the thatch and you know thatch is is measured as total organic material and in fact, I remember, Chris, you've got your Substack newsletter, which is like a blog, uh, so you can view it on the web, and then you can get that delivered by email. Yep. Um, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes when I when I get this uh, recording set up as a 
as a recording. Um, I remember you wrote about kind of what you were doing in, in a post earlier this year. And one of the first comments uh, was, well, if you're not top dressing all the time, uh, how do you deal with thatch accumulation? Um, mm -hmm. And that's that's very typical type of way to think about this. If if you just have the thought that grasses inherently produce thatch. Right. Um, but then when you actually measure it, when you pay attention to how much the grass is growing, you pay attention to what the work is done, uh, to how much sand is applied and so on, and you pay attention to how the organic material is changing in the soil, you can see what's happening at your site if, if thatch is accumulating or not. Uh, so in addition to what you look at or what you touch or what you squeeze in the soil or whatever, um, you, you can have some hard numbers to actually show exactly how, how much it's changing. And that's where I think this is really valuable and it gets more valuable over time. Well, I think one one really good point that you've made, Micah, and that I think is worth bringing up is I think there is an idea among many people in the industry that, that grasses, especially fine textured bent grasses, are just inherently going to produce a lot of thatch. I remember when I got this job, when I was had been... Um, I had just started at Hazeltine. I started in the winter and I was just sort of researching the things that I needed to watch out for in managing some of the grasses that we had. And the greens were relatively new A4 greens. And so I had talked to some people who managed A4 or just, you know, just, just kept my ear ears open about as to what people were saying about A4. And one thing, one comment that was made frequently was, you have to beat it up. You have to do lots of cultural practices, whether it be verticutting, brushing, grooming, whatever it might be, to, to make sure that it isn't producing thatch and it isn't getting puffy. And um, those types of events or cultural practices really weren't part of my philosophy even back then. And I recall thinking to myself, I'm like, I just would rather... I would rather keep doing what I'm doing and let's see what happens to this grass as opposed to going into it with this mentality of, yeah, I've got to beat the crap out of it um, to keep it from getting puffy and, and um, thatchy. And, you know, it's, it's proven to not need any of those things to maintain a really good surface. So it, sometimes you just have to get over this. Uh, I guess you call it, the call it the conventional wisdom if you want. Um, you just have to get over this idea that, we think something is, has to be done or we think something that is the way it is. And, um, you know, yeah, it, that's what we, it requires. It requires observation and, right. and it's useful when you collect the data and look at them over time, because, uh, if, if you just make observations and try to remember them and, and don't keep track of it and, uh, yeah. and look at it over time, uh, some of the insights don't become apparent as quickly, I don't think. Um, right. And, and we, we're constantly getting reinforced uh, with the idea that a lot of this stuff is essential and everybody else is doing it. I'm going to be going to the Japan Turf Show today, and I expect that when I'm there, I'll see some some uh, Verticut cassettes and some uh, ver a lot of equipment that is set up for... Uh, 
for for removing thatch and dealing with thatch removal. And one of my favorite uh, booths there is some of the tine, one of the tine makers uh, that has the most amazing type of display of uh, different tines uh, with fine Japanese steel um, with deep tines and tiny tines. And um, it's, it's something that I used to think was like, wow, how can we optimize this to punch more holes, remove more surface area? There's all of this reinforcement of all of this technology that's available, all of the wonderful machinery that's available to do this work is based on just this assumption that, that we need to do it. And in a lot of cases, we do need to do it. And if you do need to do it, uh, then you definitely need to use that type of machinery and use the right tines and, and optimize what you're doing. But, but at the same time, it's useful to step back and say, wait a second, what actually are the conditions on my surfaces? What is the condition in my soil? And, and how can I optimize this for my site? Um, instead of just having a program, the, the word that I don't really like, uh, program of, of work um, that, that just gets applied with the brute force approach. Yeah, I, I think that's that's it's an interesting observation. I've written a little bit about that too. How, you know, the industry responded to our wants and desires to apply more sand more frequently, and they produce better equipment and you know equipment that did it in a in a better way. And the same thing has happened with tines and with um, you know different grooming blades and and that sort of thing. And um, it's not to say, as you said, that some of that stuff isn't necessary, but what it's done is it's made it really easy for us to do. And, um, and again, it all operates on the assumption that we, that those kind of things have to be done. And, um, you know, I, I would rather look at it and say, boy, let's only do the things that we absolutely have to do to make these surfaces perform the way we want them to perform every day. And, um, and sometimes that may be some of those things and other times it, it may not be some of those things. I don't think, let me see if I can change the way this displays. There, that's better. That's a little bit better. I was just adjusting the chart. Okay, well, we've looked at that long time series. Shall we move on, Chris? Uh, sure. And uh, hello, Tebow from Ireland. Uh, we, gosh, we must have... Uh, 10 or, or more countries represented here. So the next, the next chart I show in the report is, is a really fancy one. Uh, and it, it details these, uh, it shows the time series now um, broken down by I mean, it's another time series, but now it, it, it shows uh, the two centimeter depth and the two to four centimeter depth and the four to six centimeter depth yep. in a little bit more detail. So this, uh, this is maybe worth pausing on just for a little bit, because I, I think we have gotten that question or we've heard the question about this and, you know, concerns about two to four and whether that's something we worry about or not. I mean, the answer for me is no, I'm not really, it's interesting to see what two to four and four to six are like, but it's not something I, I really am finding concerning. Um, 
well, no, you're not. But let's. So if we look at this chart, the OM2, which is the top two centimeters, that's basically flat over five seasons. And the two to four is basically flat over four seasons. Yeah. And the four to six, which is, uh, is down starting at the 1.6 inches below the surface going down to 2.4 inches below the surface that's four to six centimeters in depth so it's 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 a little bit below the surface but not not particularly deep um that is is not quite flat and and it's not it's not like it's really high but it is definitely increasing yeah but I would say that's normal for a sand-based root zone that has relatively young turf because we expect turf grass to accumulate organic material in the soil, uh, accumulate organic matter in the soil for about 30 years uh, just through the growing process. So this isn't really thatch. Uh, it, I think this is just our normal organic matter accumulation because those grains are what, 14 years old in the ground? Uh, two, they were seeded in 2010. So yeah they've gone through almost uh 12 13 growing seasons i guess so yeah i mean it would it would make sense that at some point you know that the the zero to two and the two to four are going to end up being in the four to six and that that number would go higher so and so so basically you're right the the two to four and the four to six uh they're not changing a lot and they're not problematic but I, I want to say a couple of things uh, about this some people say that that uh, those numbers don't change much uh, and they're just like okay I'm gonna skip the testing on it however I like to do most of the testing at the zero to two centimeter depth but I still like to check at two to four and four to six for a couple of reasons one is uh, we really want to see, do we need to put sand down into the profile or is it okay to just spread the sand on the surface? And if we just skip testing that, we don't see if anything's changing over time at a deeper level. So I really like to have a few samples uh, from those deeper depths. And it's and some golf courses or or other types of turf grass are going to have different results than what you have. So in, in fact, on the ATC Discord server, which uh, you anybody that wants to, that's a little bit of a, a chat and information sharing group um, using the Discord app, uh, you can find a link to that on the ATC website, uh, asianturfgrass.com, um, if you're interested. Um, I believe it was Francois just shared from France his recent OM246 results, and he was like at three, if I remember right, it was three or four percent uh, down at those depths. And, and he said uh, his, after a rain, uh, his, his surfaces don't really dry down uh, the way that he would expect. And, and he, has, he, he can go a really long time between irrigation, which is which is maybe a good thing or maybe a bad thing depending on what species of grass you're trying to grow um but it's it's interesting um 
to know what those are and to know if you need to be putting sand down deeper into the profile or or not so um I think this is a nice check of like, okay, there's nothing going bad there. There's nothing going wrong. We can continue to not punch holes. We can continue to not put sand down into the root zone. Yeah. Um, but if you don't check it, you you can't really say that with so much confidence. And I think it's it's um, it's difficult to make a hard decision about yes or no about whether you need to put sand at the surface or whether the sand needs... Uh, needs to go down into the profile. Yep. Okay. Um, now we're going to go to the really complicated one that I thought you get, you get that special normally for most people, uh, on their report, this is the first chart they see, which is this time series, which I think is, is most important. I said, uh, uh, you know, in the report, I say that that's what I think is most important. You got that special one that shows, uh, the breakdown by season because you've happened to measure in the spring uh two yeah. summer testings and then all the autumn testing and because the results are a little bit different because as uh as john roland pointed out um and he's done some research on this you uh you're you're obviously capturing both the soil organic matter and the living plant material you're you're getting all the living and dead plant undecomposed plant material and that uh that includes living roots and so living root mass is going to depend on the season and um so that's that's, why that's what we and and that's what we've seen is that it's lower in july when we test the two uh it's lower so that that makes sense it makes sense that there's less of that uh I'll i'll go back to that chart so you can see the green the green line, it, it's about half a percent. Yeah, let, let's say 0.3, 0.4% lower in the summer, it looks like. And and we suspect the, those tests were taken in late July, uh, those summer ones. Mm-hmm. So we suspect in late July, there may be less root mass than there is in early October when you're taking the samples on these bent grass greens in Minnesota. Yep. So um, let's see. Now we'll go to the complicated one, and this one, this one might be my favorite, um, and I think it might be the most interesting one. But I don't know that it's particularly actionable. And what this chart is showing is is all bent grass greens for comparison. Uh, so it's showing what percentile your results are in at the two centimeter depth, the four centimeter depth, and the four to six centimeter depth. So, um, yeah, so you're at 4.8% on mm-hmm. average in the zero to two centimeter depth in the most recent samples. And that puts for all the other bent grass greens, uh, in the world, I'm expecting them to have 21% of them are below and 79% would be higher than that. Yep. And, and so that, that just kind of shows you, uh, where you're at and, if you look at the way that curve goes, it goes down to less than 3% at the minimum, and it goes up to about 15% at the maximum. So you could say if you would go sample all the bent grass greens in the world, you wouldn't expect to find many of them above 15%. And you also wouldn't expect to find many of them less than 
less than about 2.7% or something like that. And so I'm, I'm saying all the greens in the world because I'm basing this on a statistical model that's based on the data that I've actually collected and, and then uh, letting the computer simulate based on, on that model uh, all, the, all the greens in the world. So this is the one that, that's kind of fun for me to make. And, and, and then it's updated every time I get new data, every time we add, um, every time we add more data into the data set, um, I rerun that model and recalculate this. Yeah, very, very interesting. So, so this one is a lot of people, and, and I think if, if I was managing grass, I would also be curious about this is, is how do my results compare with others? And so for, for putting greens, I break this down by species. So if you've got fescue greens, you would get a completely different type of chart, but this is just comparing to bent grass greens specifically. Mm -hmm. So John, oh, John's actually in the chat. He says, hi from Florida. Yes, there's seasonal variations in root weight. Yep. Thanks, John. Uh, Thomas Bastis has a question. He says, how do you standardize the sampling depth? Is there a recommended sampling tool specific to OM246? Chris, let me... Uh, okay. If you let have me, the information, that's a great, that's a great question. Let, let me say how I do it. And then you give your response. Uh, yep. I, I've got on my website, asianturfgrass.com, a two page document with recommended sampling instructions that describes the type of tool that I prefer. Okay. So I'll just let you check that out. Uh, anybody that's interested, um, I, I want to say just like use the tool that you have. Uh, um, I I don't think that the sampling needs to be too complicated, and it's quite simple to take a soil core with whether you want to use a profiler or whether you want to use a regular type of uh, a cylindrical sampler, and just cut it at the specific depths and just recognize that as long as you're requesting the proper test at the lab, as long as you're sending the sample to a lab that can do this type of testing, they're going to sample, or, sorry, they're going to analyze, they're going to burn 100% of what you send them. And so I, I really like the person taking the samples to be very comfortable with the sample that they've taken and just recognize that whatever they have in their sampling bag or whatever they have in their sampling bucket or in their hands or however they've uh they've got that sample after taking it they know that 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 material is what's going to be tested at the lab um and for me personally i like to use a cylindrical sampler that is not that does not have a tapered tip okay it's just a, a tube that's sharpened at the end like a miniature cup cutter and i don't like using a cup cutter because i struggle to cut it to depth but i find if this if it's about one inch in diameter uh then that that is much easier for me to cut to depth and so specifically i use a four centimeter diameter sampler which is a little bit more than one inch in diameter 
Um, but I've, I've at various times also used a soil profiler, a cup cutter where I just hack up the, the cup, uh, the plug, um, and, and I've used, uh, three quarter inch and one inch type of, of samplers also. Yep. All right, Chris, now so you give a, the prop, proper answer. Yeah. I have a stainless steel piece of, a piece of stainless steel pipe that is about maybe, uh, a little more than an inch on the inside diameter. Um, you, as you, and you recommended this to me, so it's, it's kind of to the same specs you mentioned. It doesn't have a taper to it. It's just straight like a cup cutter. It has an outside sharpened edge so that it doesn't, the sharpening doesn't pinch the, or squeeze the sample. Um, and then I lay it, I pull it out and I lay it on a, a cut on just a, a clipboard that I have marked at the increments. Um, or marked with with two centimeter increments and then i cut it using i just have a like a butter knife um that i've sharpened i'll use the 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 rotary blade sharpener to just sharpen it every year and it it cuts it quite nicely um so that's been that's been quite um nice and it's a little bit bigger than like a standard core sampler like a t-handled sampler that that people might use um and then i take five samples per green and i cut them into the depths and then i have a separate bag for each of them and i put, put them in the bag um, i leave all of the verdure on i don't cut anything off um, before on the on the two the zero to two sample um, and then i let them sit and dry completely which you just wrote about today uh, before i send them into uh, the brookside lab for the uh, testing uh, it's all quite handy and, uh, you know, is, is um, quite a nice clean process. With the sampler that I have, I'm able to take, I go out and I take the number of plugs that I need to replace, and then I just replace them with a plug from the same the same sampler. So, And I use the same sampler for uh, nutrient um, sampling as well. Yeah. I So... I don't, I don't want people to not do this because they don't have a special sampler. Um, so I want to make the point that you can use any type of sampler that you want to. Um, and, and the, I guess, I guess like some people have preferences with the type of sampler that they want to uh, use or they don't like taking holes that are a certain size um, and they'd rather take smaller samples and and rather use a, a smaller type of profiler so I think it's fine um, but I yeah great Chris Chris just brought out his so Chris I'm going to change the screen around so that that shows really uh, large and I'm going to yeah, there we go. All right, Chris, you're kind of in a vertical position, so you can hold that pipe. Yeah, so that's stainless steel, right? Stainless steel. And all I did is I went to our equipment manager, and I kind of told him what I was looking for, and he went and found it. He just went to a, he just went to a local guy that he knew who had a a, a machine shop, and this was basically like a just a a piece that was cut off something else that the guy was working on and he just gave it to him. So this was essentially free. Um, but like Micah said, don't, don't make this the reason that you do or don't do this sampling. Uh, you should, uh, 
you know, you can do it with anything as he mentioned. So, yeah. I, and I, I think, um, yeah, if you read my blog, uh, or listen to me talk about this, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I like to do a special kind of nutrient sampling too, where we take a little bit larger sample, I like a little bit larger core, but instead of taking multiple cores and mixing them together, I like to just take a single core, that type what, of sampler. What? Wait a minute. What? You take it, you recommend a single core. That seems like madness. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> uh, so when somebody, when the right people pay attention to this, uh, I think they will rebuke me. Uh, they, they, because this, this, this should be the most controversial thing ever, uh, because it goes against all of the sampling instructions where you're supposed to take a minimum of 12 samples. Now, now we've just changed the subject to nutrient test, nutrient sampling, uh, yeah. where you're going to test for soil, potassium, phosphorus, and pH and, and that sort of thing. And, um, so that is supposed to be done by taking multiple samples, mixing them together, and then from that bucket that you've you've filled with 12 to 30 uh, subsamples from the area you're testing, then you're supposed to take a subsample out of that and send that to the lab for testing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I've written about this at length on my website, so you can you can read why I uh, I recommend just taking a single core. But it turns out that having that type of sampler that pulls that size of core works perfect for that because we need a minimum sample size of something like 50 cubic centimeters or 75 cubic centimeters which is about one fourth of a cup and if you take a if you use the typical three quarters of an inch or 18 millimeter diameter soil sampler or 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 soil uh core what what is it called a soil sampler yeah somebody yeah. Soil probe, yeah. something like probe, that. Probe. So, yeah. so if you if you use those little ones, you don't get enough material with one pull. So you have to take multiple samples anyway. And mm -hmm. I like to just um, take all the sample in one um, one grab. So, in fact, I was just at Kea Golf Club last. Um, I was at Kea Golf Club in Fukuoka last Friday, and there was the Japan Mid Amateur Championship. I went out after the final group. Um, and, and I collected OM246 samples from five greens and nutrient samples from six or seven greens. And, and I had a couple of people helping me, uh, uh, fix the, fix the holes, but just, just taking the samples out of the ground took me, and that included waiting for the golfers to get out of the way. It took me less than an hour and a half. So it's it's really a fast process to get all the nutrient samples, all the OM two four six samples, yeah. um, using that type of single core process. Well, this is you recommended this to me a couple of years ago, um, and and it's what I do, and it's it's great. And I think if I can if I can speak to the research that you've done, I'm not going to speak to it in in the same kind of detail. But essentially, what you did is you looked at. Uh, the same greens and a sub whether it was taken from a subsample of like 12 different samples versus taking one particular one single core and you looked at whether you would have made a different recommendation on one versus the other is that that's correct and in i think in no cases you would you have made a different recommendation on the the um multi how would i say it 
the sub the the composite the, multi, the composite sample versus the one single core is that did I say that right did I yeah that's exactly right so yeah. many of the people uh, who are in the live uh, who are watching this live and and many of the people who will listen to this participated in this project and I asked you when you do the soil sampling please take uh, one single core and then from that same green take composite samples and we're going to compare the results. So I did that, and that's one of my, uh, yeah. So, right, I, I was just looking at the chat. We've got all kinds of comments here that I'm going to um, going to respond to, and 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 we'll discuss one by one. But uh, I sim, I, I checked what would the fer what would the fertilizer recommendation be for the single core result, and what would the fertilizer recommendation be for the composite sample result. The composite is the typical way of doing it, the, the recommended way. And so I checked what the recommendations would be and they were the same. And I, this is for sand-based root zones. We did do that a little bit on a, on a couple soil-based uh, fairways, I think, um, but, but almost all of my data is for sand-based greens. And, and I've done this project uh, in various ways, like three times, may, maybe four times now um, from from putting greens on multiple continents, multiple species. And uh, we get we end up making the same fertilizer recommendation. So the problem would be, the risk would be, if somehow that single core sampling failed to identify situations in which we needed to apply fertilizer. That would be the risk. And so I've been checking this uh, and I have not found that that it has that flaw. Uh, so what we get is some theoretical improvements in in catching the low and the high uh, nutrient levels, which would seem to be the reason that we're doing soil testing in the first place. Rather than having those extremes dampened and overshadowed and hidden by by doing all that composite sampling, so we don't actually find our real lows and highs. So. Um, I think theoretically it's quite an attractive way to do it and man is it a lot faster because yes. i yes. i generally work with my clients and and now i think it's a good chance for us to to uh respond to what uh thomas asked uh thomas asked do you send the samples into brookside yourself chris under mike's customer profile and that is yes mm -hmm. so Brook, brookside has an interesting setup it's not like um yeah, some labs you send it in through the fertilizer company, um, and, and they've got an account with with the lab, um, and then the fertilizer company gives you the report, which you can uh, understand naturally has some bias in it if you're getting your your soil testing done through the fertilizer company. Uh, if you're sending the samples to a laboratory yourself, uh, you can sometimes just send the samples direct to the lab. And Brookside might. They, they're sort of implementing that for some testing, but they don't really advertise it. But I think they're they're doing that at a different price um, than what I pay. So the way Brookside works is I'm a, a Brookside consultant, and there's many Brookside consultants around the world, and you may work with one of them yourself. Uh, and so the the consultants are part of what's called the Amplify Network, which is a, a group of uh, professional consultants who work with uh, with clients and send their samples to Brookside. Uh, 
and actually for the amplify network we share information among ourselves and and have an active uh communication where we're sharing the latest ideas and good results and stuff like that but the way it works to actually send to the lab to brookside is the client sends the sample to the lab and the lab runs the test and sends the results to the consultant the consultant prepares the report and sends that to the client and the client pays the consultant the client never pays the lab directly so it's a bit of a of a convoluted setup if you haven't if you're not familiar with it or if you haven't done it before and then of course i'm paying the lab a, a very low cost for the testing because it soil testing doesn't cost a huge amount of money and then i mark that up with my consulting fee and i'm charging the client a fair price for the work that i've done that includes both the laboratory testing and my preparation of the report and, and providing consulting services so it's a that, it's a great it's a great way to do it uh i i it's it's very handy for for me i mean i i will package these samples up and send them to brookside through you know the the mail essentially and uh within two days usually they're at the lab they do the testing which you know if anybody's uh had the chance to watch if they've not had the chance to watch your little uh that's about a 25 minute video, I think, of a, a little tour through Brookside Laboratory. I think it's I think what's great is that you've got a connection with them. You've especially in in, in regard to the OM246, I think you've worked with them to make sure that the testing is being done in the, in the specific way that you want it to be done or or at the specific levels. You can speak more to that. But um, so so that's it's quite nice. It's a nice way to do it. And it's it's very handy. So. Yeah. Um, let's see. All right. Stefano from Italy. Welcome Stefano. Um, let's see. I'm, I'm looking through the chat. I'm, I'm going to try, we're, we're taking a break from the report and, and we'll answer these questions or respond to the comments, uh, for a while. Let's see. Oh, Carl, Carl shared some information. Carl said for New York data, they've got Z, their average is zero to two is 6.5%, 2.4 is 3.2, and four to six is three. Chris, with your permission, I'm going to jump ahead on the report and I'm going to jump ahead to the table that shows the averages that's broken down by species because this is a I give a very detailed report so let's see what that was and we'll go look at bent poa average in my data um so that's gonna be in this is table two which is these are the data summarized by species based on the 2130 OM246 measurements from putting greens in the ATC database as of last month, as of October 25th. So if we look at OM2, the average for bent POA uh, is 8.1 in, in my data. The minimum is 3.4, the maximum is 16.4, and the OM4 is 3.5, and the OM2 to uh, the om6 is 2.4 so 
Let me let me write my numbers down. My my average was eight point one, three point five, two point four. And Carl said Carl said that in New York the average is six point five, three point two and three so um that's that's very good information to have um uh, i would say that you're a little bit lower than than i would expect uh at the zero to two and the two to four and four to six are are pretty typical um i think i think that people in new york probably intensively manage the uh the grass and and maybe they put enough sand that it just reduces that a little bit from my average of eight to to 6.5 i don't i mean here's a question to pose um that that i don't really know the answer to but in new zealand they they recommend less than six percent in the zero to two in the UK, they recommend less than 6% in the 0.2. And a lot of people are really, they really like those numbers of, so, uh, of like doing lots of work to try to get less than 6%. If we just look at bent POA, uh, the average in New York is 6.5. So if we assume that the median is the same as the mean in this case, then we would say 50% of the putting greens in New York uh, would be above six and a half percent and and let's say that uh you know you'd you'd have uh maybe sixty percent are above six percent so that means sixty percent of the greens in New York should be getting intensive cultivation and sand top dressing in order to reduce the organic material if you follow that type of recommendation, which I think that that's not really the way to do it i I don't like to set those thresholds. And I like to look at the playing performance over time, the surface performance over time. Um, so I'm, I'm quite comfortable with being at 6.5% or even at 8% so long as the surfaces are okay. So I think it's, I think it's worth noting, Micah, that at no time during this whole process from or the, over the uh, five years now that we've done this testing, have you and I discussed a number that we should try to get to? Basically, from the beginning of this testing, the question you asked was, you know, are you happy with how the surfaces perform and what you're getting from them? And the answer has always, in a very simple way, has been yes. You know, we're, everything that you would want a good putting surface, a championship-level putting surface to do, we're getting that. So so we, from the from you and I, from the get-go, have always discussed these results from a standpoint of, we are where we need to be. We don't need to be lower. We probably definitely don't need to be higher. There, there's no reason seemingly to go higher, but we definitely don't have to like chase some kind of number. We're we're at the number we're at, the high high fours, and we're not looking to go to the high threes or the mid twos or something like that. So that's the way that we've been doing it. it but it could be possible if somebody's doing this testing to say this is too high, it's whatever percentage that is. We're getting, you mentioned Francois in the in the Discord chat, 
you know, said maybe his his numbers are this, and and that's not to say he's anything is wrong there, but maybe he would decide I want to do more work to get down to a number that will give me something that I'm 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 more happy with. But I think that's an important thing to say is that this isn't we're not chasing a number at least in our situation. Um, we're, yeah, we're, but- we're, we're keeping it where we're at. Yeah, I I really like to do this in a site-specific way and to uh, be looking at the test results over time and and just finding out the number that, that works well to produce the desired playing conditions where you are. Because I, I know, uh, for, I'll use the example of Kea Golf Club, which is uh, Cori, Green, Zoysia, mm-hmm. Ventrella, and those greens have fluctuated from uh, oh eleven percent up to sixteen percent OM two, and they perform great. And I was there last week at, at the Japan Mid Amateur Championship, and this was at the uh, uh, at the at the end of the year, and. And I guess the grass is is it's not dormant yet. It's still growing, but but it's not growing as as actively it was as it was in the summer. Uh, anyway, pretty good playing conditions for a high level amateur tournament. And uh, one of the players uh, could speak excellent English, and and he couldn't stop talking as he was making his way from the first nine to the second nine. He had a, a really good conversation with us, and it was about how firm the greens were, and about how he couldn't get the ball to stop if he was hitting out of the rough, and just. Um, and, and I know those greens, I just took the samples. I don't know the numbers yet, but I imagine they're going to be like 15% organic material or, or, or 13% organic material OM2. So for those greens, it would be ridiculous to say that we need to try to hit some kind of 6% mm-hmm. threshold because they're just performing great at, at more than 10%. So, um, I, I think the the key to this is is finding the number that works well for your property. Yeah, and and that's why I think that that chart that I showed uh, that I said is is one of my favorite ones. I'll, I'll put it back up on the screen, and it's the the complicated one, um, and it maybe the most interesting one, but it's not really an actionable one. I don't want people taking action on on how their greens compare. Um, but but it is interesting to know. Yeah. All right. Um, this is terrific. We got a lot more questions in the chat, so let's go through these. Let's see. Uh, Jeffrey Johnson has a very uh, good comment. He says he he just uses a so he's talking about what he uses to collect the samples. One and a quarter inch stainless steel plumbing pipe from the hardware store. Um, and th- these work pretty good for extracting samples from sand root zones. I've tried uh, collecting samples from soil, from uh, fairways in, in Thailand that are soil-based. And recently, with uh, actually with Mr. Yawata, uh, we, we were in Chiba uh, collecting samples from some soil-based, uh, uh, from, from some, a soil-based test green. And... Uh, and using this type of straight pipe, it is almost impossible to get the sample get out, out to get it out. And that's why a normal sampler uses a tapered tip, yep. which makes it easier to get into the soil and it makes it easier to get the sample out of the tube. But I found for sand root zones, 
uh, at a shallow depth, these type of straight pipes that are sharpened at the end, they these type of samplers work work pretty slick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Mr. Yawata says he maybe maybe in response to our uh, <laughs> our debacle <laughs> uh, last month trying to collect samples. Uh, we did we did finally succeed but but it was hard at the start he said i have come up with a new uh i've come up with a new sampler structure i will try to make a prototype during the winter and um uh, speaking of uh of samplers and, and what's kind of a standard one um in addition to what chris showed which is what Jeff described and which you can also see on my instruction sheet for taking OM246 samples. Um, I talked with a golf course superintendent in, uh, in the Washington DC area in the springtime. And he said that he was developing a, he, he had a friend uh, who was going to work with him to make a type of sampler. And they were thinking of offering that for sale. Um, I don't know how, far that project has progressed um but that that you know it may be i'll I'll check with him and and see if that's available um that there there's maybe some people that can fabricate these for you and 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 sell you one um let's see john john roland has some comments about single core sampling Yeah, so he says, I agree with single core, especially if you can repeat measurement aligned over aerification holes. Regardless, I think it catches variability better uh, than randomly sticking a sampler in the ground. Um, And he also says that you need about 10 or 20 samples typically to be consistent versus one cup cutter. Let's see. Uh, so I'm not, I don't quite, uh, I'm not quite following that particular comment, John. So if you want to elaborate on that, uh, let me know. But if we're talking about, uh, if we're talking about nutrient sampling, uh, and we go back and consider this single core issue. Um, John said uh, he thinks single core sampling catches variability better than randomly sticking a sampler in the ground. Um, so the idea with single core is that we have low and high spots and and variation in soil nutrient levels and variation in soil pH, variation in soil organic matter. And the idea is that when we put the sampler in the ground, uh, if we just take a single core, that that could be a high spot, it could be a low spot, and uh, it it could have a pH of 6.1, it could have a pH of 6.8, and the average pH across the area might be 6.6, but do we really want the average or do we want to know what our low and highs are? And so I, I like to try to capture some of that variability uh, instead of just lumping it all together into a composite. Um, let's see. Um, Tebow's got a question. 
Uh, hi, Chris. What would be the main reasons, in your opinion, to explain how you keep those organic matter numbers at the same level over the mm -hmm. years with so little disruptive operations? And the next question is, is it related to a low fertilizer program based on your growth rate? So yes would be the answer to that. Uh, I mean, it has a it has to do with a few factors. One thing that we do pay attention to is how much and and another discussion that that you and I have, Micah, is how much sand do we think needs to go down in the next year um, versus uh, based on the results that we saw. And by taking these OM246 samples at the beginning of October, what it does is our golf season ends at the end of October, beginning of November. So we take the samples, we get the results, we have a discussion about, okay, what does what do the numbers this year look like compared to um, previous years? And then how much sand, then we can decide how much sand to put down before winter. So after we close the golf course, we will apply sand to the greens um, ahead of winter, sort of as a, as a winter protection, but also... It's an opportunity for us to put that sand down during a time when we aren't experiencing any golf. And that sand can sit there over the winter and the winter snow and the snow melt and the freeze and the thaw can help that sand work into the canopy. So by the time we get to the spring and we're ready to play golf, we have very minimal impact from that sand. So we'll decide how much sand we want to put down and it's related to what our OM2, for, what our OM2 numbers are, are like. And then also we have really sort of gotten very detailed in how we're looking at nitrogen. And that's something we've been working on uh, over the last couple of years, um, various discussions that we, we've had in that, in that regard. So I've gotten more, I've fine-tuned the, the way we think about nitrogen more so in the last couple of years. Um, and yes, it is related to growth rate and trying to find the most um, consistent growth rate throughout the course of the season yeah it's it's not that you don't apply sand at all um it's just you're able to apply it because of your climate in a in a moderate amount at the end of the season right yep and exactly but yeah i think it is related to to uh, uh your fertilizer rates this year um they seem extremely low and they're like a third of what you used to uh, what you've applied let's say three or four years ago All right uh, let me see if i can maybe a good time for me to share a screen here let's see Whoops, that's not what we're looking for. I'm just sharing my screen. You're, you're sharing, <laughs> you're sharing the wrong screen. That's not it, what I want to do. It, yeah, it it should pop up that uh, like a little tab that allows you to choose yeah. which which screen, which window you want to share. I'm gonna try one more time, and if it doesn't do what I think, no. 
I think the problem is that I have. Okay. Micah, do you want to talk about, you just wrote about this a little bit. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the, the growth ratio and how we've been utilizing that. And then I will see if I can get this. Uh... Yeah. So the idea is uh, if the grass, if you're measuring the clipping volume, which I recommend is a pretty simple way. Uh, all right. You know what? I'm not even going to go. I'll just let Chris continue because he figured out how to share the proper thing on the screen. Is it still up there? Yeah, it's it's there. Okay, so perfect. so that's what you want to show. But it, that it's is possible. If you can zoom in on that a little bit, it it would be awesome. But if not, you can describe I should be able and to. tell people they can find it on your oh, sub stack. Too much. How's that? That's That's better. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what this is showing is, is the amount of nitrogen, various amounts of nitrogen. So the gray line, which goes up at the highest level in between two and three pounds per thousand square feet per year is the nitrogen use predicted by growth potential. So growth potential is something that takes a look at the weather, um, and, and tells, do you want to describe it, Micah? I mean, you, you were a part of coming up with it or you got much more experience with it than I do. So you. Probably describe that better. Oh boy, now, Micah did what I did. use this opportunity to use the facility, so I will describe it. It basically gets it's looking at how much, how much, what what's the weather like, and if we have good weather, like you can see it right at the beginning of the year, it went up and then it leveled off. So that was we had a really cold period, so there was really no growth potential, and that tells you how much nitrogen the plant is probably using it's predictive it's not exact and then these other uh the orange is the amount that was removed from our mowing so you can see the orange line that's the next one down shows you how much nitrogen based on a per, how much the percentage of nitrogen that you would expect to be in in uh, clippings and then that's, I use a, a formula to, to tell us how much nitrogen is being removed from grass clippings. And then the blue stair step, which is below that, is the nitrogen that we applied. And then the yellow below it is another, um, a little bit more complicated um, prediction, which is done through a formula um, that is predicting using the growth ratio, which we'll talk about here in a moment, um, that's predicting how much nitrogen we should apply. So in the past, I have applied nitrogen that went much more between um, the much was much closer to the nitrogen, the gray predicted by growth potential. And what I found in that case was when the nitrogen was at those levels, we would tend to get a little bit, I won't even call it puffy, but I might call it scuffy, like shoes at the end of the day around the hole we're really kind of scuffing up the grass and now it might be easy in that sense and that might be something that if we saw it and back in my previous days i would see something like that and i would think okay the answer to this is top dressing we need to top dress because we're seeing this but what i have found is when we see that scuffiness start to show up we can reduce the nitrogen rate and let the plants essentially sort of grow out of that um desire to almost want to get puffy or just it just tells me that the grass is growing too much 
rather than applying sand top dressing, will reduce the nitrogen rate. So in previous years, when this nitrogen rate was was much higher, um, we were seeing more of that sort of scuffiness during the course of the, the season. This year, we really reduced the nitrogen levels, the amount of nitrogen being applied down to something much, much closer to the amount of nitrogen being removed from clippings. And so you can see how this blue stair step here almost completely matches, almost exactly matches the orange or the nitrogen being removed as clippings. What we saw this year was a much better surface. We saw a surface that was um, much closer to what we would desire uh, on a daily basis. I didn't really see that scuffiness happening at any point. I never got where I felt like, you know, that was a problem. I never in my mind, going back to the old mentality, would have thought, boy, we could really use some sand top dressing right now. And so, you know, it's a constant process to try to dial in the exact amount of nitrogen for what we're doing. Um, if we had been um, applying, if we had been applying more nitrogen, just in an extreme sense, this this process probably would not work if we always applied an amount of nitrogen that was something like this gray here. Yeah, I, and we would, and and next year you might have to apply a little bit more, um, but we'll just see about that, yeah. Yeah. Um, or you'll see about that. Um, but I think you know if you are verticutting. Let, let's imagine that you're uh, doing a a light verticutting every Monday, and you're you're dusting, uh, you're putting out a dusting of sand every Monday. When you're doing that, then you have to maintain a certain growth rate for the grass to recover from that, and and that requires more nitrogen, which produces both above ground and below ground organic material, right. and so sometimes those processes. Uh, those processes that we do force us to do the maintenance work. And on a recent ATC double cut, I was talking with Fraser Brown from uh, Lake Cairnup Golf uh, Country Club in Perth, Western Australia. And he mentioned uh, when he used to core and he'd be tossing out a you know 40 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare in an extra application to make sure that the cores would heal over quickly because the golfers want to come back and, and play and they've got a year-round golfing season there. And that type of thing used to be so customary. I used to do that when I was a golf course superintendent. I'd go out with a granular fast-release fertilizer about uh, three to five days before I was going to punch the holes in the greens to make sure that the plants were really juiced up with, with a lot of nitrogen so that they were growing really fast to recover. And that, I think, actually, uh, if you work through the math, that produces more. It, it, it seems like simply that increase in nitrogen would produce more organic material than you remove or than you dilute by the very coring and, and top dressing process that, that uh, you're trying to do to manage the organic matter. So it's actually counterproductive to do that if you're putting that much nitrogen. Uh, so... That, that it's definitely kind of it's definitely Go something ahead. we've seen as this has gone on i think and you again you and i just kind of maintain a discussion about this as the year goes on and um 
I'm not suggesting as I look at this nitrogen rate here that this is the perfect nitrogen rate for what we're doing. It might be it might be higher than that. This worked really well for this year. Could it be that we were that we were um, utilizing some some um, some of that soil or, or some of that organic matter to that was mineralizing and 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 in time we'll see those numbers continue to go down or we'll see the surface maybe look in a way that isn't quite as high quality as we would want it to be maybe a bit of a thinning or a lack of ball mark healing that very well could be the case but certainly that's that's part of this whole process is observation plus the data and if we see observation that tells us that this nitrogen rate here is too little um, we can easily you know just turn that up a little bit and um, and get a, a better surface again but Mike is right it's it's there's no doubt that because we're not damaging the surface and because we're not doing um, things like you mentioned that we don't have to get the plants to recover from those so the plants can just kind of sit there and be quite happy to grow uh, and just grow very small amounts I guess you know it's it's an easy way to say it but that's what it is that's what we're seeing for sure and the way that I recommend Chris mentioned the growth ratio um, and and we actually talked about this in in one of Chris's podcasts uh, in April during the Masters tournament we we described this process uh, of how we would do it and then Chris implemented it mid-season um, but the idea is if you're measuring the clipping volume, uh, you, uh, you know how much the grass is growing. And one of the tricky things with the clipping volume is it's, it's different depending on the time of year. So if it's December in St. Andrews, you don't expect to get a lot of clippings. If it's July in St. Andrews, you would expect to get more clippings. The growth ratio, which was developed by Jason Haynes, is a wonderful way to adjust the expected clipping volume by the site specific temperatures that you're having right now and and so rather than comparing to the growth uh, to the clipping volume directly i think it's a little bit more suitable to compare the uh, actual growth to the growth ratio to look at it as a growth ratio and based on that you have the general idea of what you want your growth ratio to be we're not going to talk about that at length because i think it's easier to to read about it first mm -hmm. and, and get some idea just go look at the growth ratio tab uh, or tag on the atc website and you can read about it chris has written about it jason haynes has written about it so so you can you can find links to that i've also written about it at pace turf so there's there's various uh places where you can get information about this and find out um how, how to calculate it and 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 what it what uh yeah what it is um but then the idea the idea is that you've got a growth ratio that you decide works well so you just look at our greens are really good right now what's our growth ratio so you're yeah. tracking the growth rate growth ratio our greens are really good jason said that it was so useful for him as he moved to a new job this year 
um, so he was he was working with a different grass species in uh, the completely other side of Canada, and he was quickly able to find out what a good growth rate was for his greens because he was looking at the growth ratio, and he found that for the fine fescue greens there, with the amount of traffic that they have and with their soils and with their weather, a growth ratio of about 0.3 was going to work well for him. You found that when you were up around 0.5, you, it it was a little bit too much grass, a little bit too much growth. So Chris, you you ended up with an average this year of zero point four two, but I think you would like to be around maybe zero point three, something like that. Um, is that right? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. And uh, I would also, as Micah did, encourage anyone to go and read about this a little bit more. It'll give you a little more context of, uh, to what we're talking about. So if you if you feel like you're confused, um, do some reading on it. Come back and listen to this part again. But uh, it, it is a. I do think we can find a number, a, a growth ratio number that is right for our situation for our type of grass. And will help us sustain through a season, which is you know really great conditions. And just sort of when we had a period in in late June when we have a uh, we have our member guest tournament, and the growth ratio was was quite high during that period. It was it was up above one, which is as Micah said, I'm I'm striving for 0.3, and we really didn't weren't getting or were having to work really hard to get the type of playing conditions that we wanted to have and i wasn't 100 percent happy with the surfaces during that period because the grass was just growing more than it should have been growing probably nothing golfers notice probably nothing that that a person even a, a turf manager walking onto the greens would have noticed but having this data and being on the greens every single day it's easy for me to say yeah that number that growth ratio the amount of growth we had at that period is is too too much too high and and so the nice thing about this is knowing what your desired growth ratio is and then knowing what your actual growth ratio is in real time so you know if your growth ratio is below where you want it mm -hmm. right where you want it or higher than you want it and you also uh can see if it's trending up or trending down or staying flat. And then what you're able to do is adjust your nitrogen rates to either skip nitrogen application if it's growing too much. Because why would you why would you increase why would you apply nitrogen to stimulate growth if if the grass is already growing faster than you want it? Right. Or if the grass is not growing as fast as you want it, you can increase the nitrogen rate. So there's some um, simple equations that I developed to easily um, automatically make that adjustment based on the growth ratio and based on how much nitrogen you you think is typical to apply for your grass at your site. And it all is kind of self-correcting and self-adjusting um, because then you're getting the feedback on how the grass is growing in response to the weather that you're having. And the next fertilizer application, you adjust it again. And so it, the idea is that you'll converge on the desired growth rate. Yep. Um, and so that's kind of what you've been implementing. And that seems like a pretty efficient approach. And it sounds complicated if you haven't ever heard of it before. But once once you wrap your head around it, it you realize it's uh, it's kind of a sensible a sensible way to approach fertilization. Yep. Yeah, that's a good that's All a good right. way to well, say it. And, and uh, 
Yeah, you've summed it up well. So there are a huge number of excellent comments. Uh, let's see. Stephen Henderson, uh, I'm going to bring up your comments, Stephen, about the 6% number. That's that's really good. He, he said, under 6% organic matter in the top two centimeters in the UK helps to manage grass species without chemicals to get rid of POA, et cetera, that are without chemicals that are available in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's a really interesting comment. And maybe, uh, maybe you can't manage good POA greens uh, at, at 5.5%. You know, it, it could be that, that's a, that, that just getting the total organic material low enough is going to favor fine fescue and favor uh, brown top bent grass or creeping bent grasses, and, and they can grow in that kind of environment, but maybe POA annua uh, just doesn't. Well, and it may also um, be that if, if the OM is at a, at that sort of level, the amount of nitrogen being applied, being utilized, is just is not going to be enough for the POA to be uh, the dominant mm-hmm. species. That's a, that's a, you know quite likely there's something something connected there. Yeah, uh, so so that's a good point. I want to mention one other thing about species and about coring. When I go to Denmark, I, I was in Denmark a couple of weeks ago, and I went on the Tour de Fungus uh, for the second consecutive year, which is just fascinating. They're trying to manage uh, high-quality putting surfaces there with, with absolutely no chemicals whatsoever, no fungicides, no insecticides, no herbicides, uh, no, no chemicals. And to do that, you don't really want to be growing POA. You want to be growing fine fescue uh, because fine fescue, when it gets some diseases that will come in if you don't apply fungicide, it still can allow a good putting surface. So uh, when I talk about not coring, and, and I'm thinking of coring as a way to manage organic matter, some of those golf course superintendents say, but we use coring uh, as a way to create space for our new fescue plants to germinate. So as they're making a transition from a primarily POA-dominated sward to a, a green that's going to have a lot more fescue in it, they, they want space for those seeds to grow. And so they're, you know, take what I'm saying and apply it to your situation. But in that case, maybe coring is a good thing for a few years uh, to do as to create as much space as possible for some of those new plants to establish. Just uh, um, just sort of anecdotal on that subject. I remember when I was at Northland Country Club, as in my early years as a superintendent, we had really good luck converting the teas to fine fescue. Uh, irrigation was spotty, and we wanted to have something that was going to be more drought resistant on those teas. And one of the ways we had real success in getting good populations of fine fescue and there was just that, coring the teas and then overseeding with fine fescue. And if you go up there today, and I'm gonna be up there later this week and we'll probably take a walk around, uh, those teas are predominantly fine fescue now. And I think that had a lot to do with it, so. Excellent. Uh, Let's see. We'll, we'll jump to Stephen's next uh, question, which is related to nitrogen. Um, Chris, what what sources of nitrogen 
I have is it straight urea or a more complex application. I have used um, urea and ammonium sulfate in the past, sometimes combining the two of them to to um, more or less just to reduce burn potential is the reason I would use urea over ammonium sulfate. This year, at the rates that we were at and the amounts we were putting out per application, I used just straight ammonium sulfate. So. Okay, thank you. Um, so, John... I think I'm talking mostly about nutrients and John Rowland, uh, when we're talking about the single core sampling versus composite, uh, John, I think is talking mostly about the organic material, um, which is what this conversation, uh, is supposed to be about today. Um, but it's so easy for us to talk about a wide range of topics. Anyway, John adds some more information. He said, uh, our data, and I think he means for the USGA's uh, project about total organic material, uh, their data is also showing a little bit more than 1% total organic material. So that's in, in POA bent grains versus bent grass grains. Um, so what that means is POA bent is going to be higher. It, it's not that it's at 1% total organic material, but let's say that bent grains on average are 6%, then POA bent grains on average would add 1% to that. So they'd be 7% in the top two centimeters. Mm -hmm. And he said, they're finding that at all three levels. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, that's pretty, pretty, pretty typical. So yeah, if, if you have POA, they do tend to be higher numbers. Um, and I know in the Pacific Northwest, it's common for POA annual greens to have total organic material of eight, nine, 10, 11%. And those greens can perform really well at those levels, but they're also almost pure POA annua, which can be an excellent putting surface. But of course, in that part of the world, there typically are pesticides available to control fungus, which would be a, a, a problem there. Um, so yeah, in, in Europe, maybe, I mean, that's, that's really good insight, uh, Stephen. And uh, thanks, thanks for, for mentioning that, that, that as far as species composition goes, um, maybe we do need to have some some thresholds of trying to push the total organic material down if we're trying to grow fescue, if we're trying to grow bank grasses, uh, because otherwise maybe it, it creates an environment that Poa annua can persist and even thrive in. Um, let's see. Jeff Whitmire asks if... Uh, he says, is there any information on the effect of rolling or traffic on OM accumulation? How often do you roll, Chris? Uh, I'll answer the first part of that question, or I'll non-answer it, and then I'll let you answer the second part. Uh, off the top of my, I bet there is that data. Uh, Travis Shaddix has a YouTube channel where he goes through scientific papers, uh, and I think that's that's the type of thing that he would go through and, and explain what the, uh, what the result has been of some research. Um, I mean, that, that's a, you can, uh, yeah, I would check Google scholar off the top of my head. I don't know, uh, uh, the effect of rolling or traffic on OM accumulation. Carl. I... Yeah. Carl Scamenti also measured like, uh, some, some data in New York and was finding that the greens, he, he did have some data that, that showed traffic on the smallest, 
I think on the courses that had the most traffic on a, a per square foot or per area basis, uh, they did tend to have lower organic matter in the soil. Mm-hmm. So, uh, probably it, it tends to reduce it, but, uh, it's, it's not something that I've, uh, prepared to answer properly. I mean, just, and a lot of people could probably recognize this or, or not along to this comment because we have, uh, we have practice screens on the South end of the golf course, uh, South end of the practice area at Hazeltine that, that are more or less target greens, not, not quite targets, but they're, they're getting balls hit to them and they're not having golfers come up and spend a lot of time walking around them. They're not, they're not getting played on like a regular green and they're not getting putted on because they're not, uh, they're not really a putting green. And those greens, despite the same maintenance programs as the greens on the course, uh, are definitely, they're softer and they definitely, we, we do test the OM, uh, we, do the OM246 on those greens and it's higher on those greens. Um, and you know, the only real thing that those greens don't get is, is traffic. And so we try to even roll, sometimes the rollers, they'll get to the end. And if we're being pushed by golf or people have already started practicing on those greens, sometimes the rollers, which are basically the last thing to come off the golf course each day, will skip those greens. So they don't tend to get rolled as much. Um, but I think we could all think of nurseries that we have, you know, stuck in the corner somewhere that probably tend to be softer and, and have more organic matter, um, than the golf course greens. So there's probably, there probably is some impact to rolling. We, we roll greens almost every day. I haven't counted. We usually, I usually keep track of how many days we don't roll in the season because it's easier than how many. And I think, that will be under 10 for the golf for the time from the time we're open until the time we close for sure. Under 10. Yeah. Under 10 that we do not roll. I see that Micah's screen is frozen. So that probably means that he had some kind of a crash on his computer. So I'll just keep, uh, I'll keep going cause he will probably restart and come back. Um, so I don't have the ability to put the questions on the screen, but John Roland asked, do you take any surface c- compressibility measurements? Uh, we had a pretty good correlation between those and thatch depth. Maybe a quick and easy way to evaluate thatch layer throughout the year. That's a good question. I, I do take um, firmness readings with a, uh, a Clegg hammer, and I imagine that's the same thing John is sort of talking about, or maybe it's different, I, I'm not aware. But I do have um, Clegg data that I take just about every week on Monday, I go out to three greens, which are actually three of the greens that we do the OM246 testing on. And I will um, measure the the water con, the VWC with a um, TDR. I will measure that. And then right over the top of it, um, I take the, uh, the reading with the Clegg hammer. Um, John says, yes, a light hammer would be best. So I do have the red American version of a Clegg. It's an older one, uh, and it has, I think, a 50, um, 50 gram, I think it would be, head, and it's flat. It's not the domed um, head that would represent a golf ball. So, But I do have that data from the last three, maybe four years, I think, and it's, uh, it's, it's generally pl- stayed pretty consistent. That's another just check. It's, it's along with the 
It's along with green speed, along with um, the bobble test, along with the OM246. It's another piece of data that we're putting into our into our decision making. And I've never seen um, the firmness uh, change or, you know, I've never seen a real issue or anything happening with firmness that leads me to believe that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're having some kind of issue below the surface. Um, so Stephen Henderson, again, asks, I've been in a few conversations that say a max of 5% OM is recommended for overseeding bents as the bent cannot survive in those conditions. Um, that's interesting. So I think Stephen, maybe you're saying it can't, it has a difficult time surviving with an OM above 5%. Um, that, that would be beyond my knowledge, I would say, but, um, yeah, I can, I can see that, uh, if you're over 5% OM, you're going to probably have, um, soil nutrient, um, soil nutrients or, or applications of nitrogen and applications of water that are going to be on the higher side. And, and you may not be, uh, you may not be naturally sort of selecting for bent grass. Um, and John says, great with a, uh, sunglasses emoji. So it seems that maybe I have, uh, answered his question, uh, adequately. So yeah. And Steven says spot on as well. So, well, we, it does seem we've lost Micah for some extended period of time. And I know that this has happened before. And then he, uh, he restarts his computer or does whatever he needs to do. And he, uh, he joins back in, uh, Jeff Whitmire, Whitmire says, uh, Whitmire. Jeff, I don't know how you say your name. I apologize if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Uh, thank you both for sharing. So, yeah, this is this is fun. Um, it's more fun when when both of us are here, obviously. But uh, it's been great to be able to talk about uh, some of this and uh, um, you know just kind of go through what we've done over the over the last few years here at Hazeltine and and the success we've had doing it. Um, again, we talked, we started at the beginning talking about how, you know, some of the comments we've heard are that this won't work forever. <clears throat> and I guess the, the comment I would make back to someone who, who doesn't think this will work forever is, okay, so our data has shown that it's worked for four years. Um, playing conditions have been excellent have been consistent, have not been changing, getting better or worse. Well, if anything, they're getting better. Uh, and then the the data that we're taking of the the OM is not the organic material is not changing. Essentially, it's been flat over four or five years. And so the 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 thing I would ask is when does that change, and um, at what point do we get to the, what 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 will tell us this isn't working? That that's the question I'd ask for anyone who would wonder you know, if this can work for, for a long, over the long haul, um, because, you know, four or five years is obviously not forever. It's not 10 years, it's not 15 years, but again, there's no trend in, in any of that data that would show that this isn't working or isn't going to work, or at some point it's going to stop working. So I don't think it's going to be a situation where our conditions fall off a cliff. I don't think it works like that. Um, and I do think that if we see some sort of regression or some sort of, um, you know, change 
taking us in the wrong direction, we would make adjustments well before it became an issue for our golfers, well before it became an issue for our playing conditions. Um, we would be able to adjust to that. So, so that's sort of my uh, retort. Um, if, uh, if, and when, you know, somebody says, well, this can't work forever. Micah says he has, he has messaged me and he says he has no audio. Uh-oh. Okay, so he he Micah has told me he thinks he's done. He has restarted. He has tried to come back uh, come back to life, and it has not been successful because he has no audio on his uh, on his computer. So um, let's see. We have one more question here from Stephen. Chris, with so little surface disruption, have you seen a noticeable increase in firmness? I would say that we don't see an increase in firmness so much as we see a very consistent firmness. So um, our firmness over the years hasn't really gone up, but what I would say is a very nice firmness that doesn't tend to um, peak and trough with the weather. So obviously when it's dry, the green surfaces will be firmer. And obviously when it's wet, they will be less firm. But um, what we have seen is that that those peaks and troughs have come pretty close together. They've gotten much, um, much tighter, and we don't tend to um, have a, a major issue with uh, a big change in firmness from wet to, to dry. So um, what I would say is I would describe our ball marks as sort of non-displaced. Like we usually don't see um, the ball will hit, and we usually don't see soil. It usually will just kind of – it'll dent or slightly push the grass – but we don't see like, you know, like we've all seen where the ball hits and maybe due to spin, it like kicks the turf out or it kicks a little divot out. We, d we definitely don't see that. So um, so I think we've just had a very nice, um, consistent firmness. The balls, I would say, on our greens, if you're hitting out of the rough, um, you have to really think about your distance control because you're, you're not likely to be able to stop the ball on the surface out of the rough. You'll have to... Um, think about what that what's going to happen and then out of the fairway um, you don't usually see balls spin back on our greens um, uh, even with a, a very good playing membership so yeah that's a great question Stephen. okay we've been going for an hour and 53 minutes hour and 54 minutes and we've we've lost our host so um, i think i want to thank everybody for joining in um and uh, oh, now, now Micah has said, "Keep going. I'm going to restart my machine." So, okay, well, I'll keep, I'll keep filling in. Stephen, yes, thank you. Um, I'm glad I could answer that question. Um, you know, again, I know another area in which uh, you know there's this thought that at some point the turf is going to fall off a cliff is is in regard to uh, soil nutrients and depleting a soil uh, a soil um, root zone of of phosphorus or potassium but you know it just those who are really good soil scientists uh, you know I'll, I'll mention Doug Soldat who's a, a friend and a, a co um, presenter of mine you know Doug has said like it doesn't it doesn't work that way turf doesn't fall off the cliff in that way when it comes to uh, nutrient soil nutrient um, deficiency 
you'll see a deficiency, you address a deficiency and the turf is, uh, you know, ends up being just fine. And we look at that through testing. You know, we do soil testing, we do soil nutrient testing, and, and that will tell us that, you know, we've got, we've got, okay, um, we know where we're at and we can address it if needed. And I think what we're doing here, what we're doing with the soil organic or the total organic material and this, this approach to top dressing minimally, you know, top dressing the greens or, or no top dressing of the greens during the season is, is the same thing. We're keeping track of where we're at. We're looking at whether we're developing issues and, and we're not, and, or, you know, we're moving on and continuing to try to stay very consistent. The other thing I would mention too, is what this results in from a standpoint of golfer, um, satisfaction and experience. And what we're really doing and what we're really able to do is just, um, you know, keep a consistent product every single day. So once we open the golf course in kind of late April, oh, Mike is back. Once we, I'll keep going though, because hey, I'm on a, I'm on a good roll. Uh, you know, once we open the golf course in, in late April and we start to get the grass to grow, um, we have really consistent conditions from, from the beginning of the year right up until the time that we close. And that's our goal not to have Mondays, uh, not to have, uh, Mondays, maintenance Mondays, um, days throughout the course of the week when a member might come out and say, Oh, you know, the, the course wasn't as good as I expected, or it wasn't as good as when I played last Saturday. Um, you know, our members can generally come out and expect that the course is going to be the same and it's going to be just as good on a Tuesday as it is on a, on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday. And, and that's been the goal. And we've, we've really achieved that. If you were to ask, uh, our membership and the people who play golf here, if, uh, if they've been happy with what we're doing, I mean, they would tell you, I think overwhelmingly, uh, that they have, and they, they love the, the consistency that they're getting every single day. Hey, I'm back. Chris, thanks for handling that while I deal with uh, the disconnection issues and audio issues. Well, it was, you know, I was looking, Mike, and I think I asked you to respond to something, and I looked at the picture, and I thought, boy, he's sitting awfully still. And uh, anyway, so good to have you back. Thanks. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it looks like... Uh, looks like this can be a common occurrence the last <laughs> the last uh atc office hours with uh richard forsyth we we had a a, a little break like that too but i remember that yeah i'm just glad the stream keeps going because it, it's like um it, it still keeps that connection to sending out the um sending out the video and audio even when I disappear for a while and then I can come back. So yeah. that's awesome. It can just well, be a, a feature. It's, it can be the special segment. Now when, we're going to have the Micah's computer crash segment. Yeah. And, and then you can, you can see how, how well the, uh, the guests, you can have your readers rate how well the guests handled the, uh, handled it when you disappeared. So, mm -hmm. um, a uh, couple, couple good questions you might want to put up on the screen here. One from Jeff. Uh, uh, low again, the uh, yeah low disruption on infiltration. Okay. Uh, so yeah, Jeff Whitmire asked, "Did you notice any effect of low disruption on infiltration?" Great question. Do you yeah. use wetting agents? If so, what type? Yeah, that. Uh, a lot of people do the the um, 
the the hole punching for the purpose mm-hmm. of maintaining an adequate infiltration rate. What what did you observe, Chris? Our, ours has been fine. So here here's what I will say, and we have done. We generally have not done a wholesale needle tining um, during this period from 2020 until now. What we have done is when we have some greens, and this usually occurs in the spring in which we get some difficulty of infiltration, some localized dry spots, we will utilize needle tining to improve that infiltration and try to get that problem to become uh, less impactful. Um, we do use a wetting agent. I, I've written about this. It's actually the most popular, most read post on my uh, Substack is how we use wetting agents. And just very uh, quickly to summarize it, we we apply a very low rate of a wetting agent. And I, I think you can use pretty much anything. We just use a uh, a, a product that from Winfield, now Heritage. Um, and we apply it one ounce per thousand every time we spray. And that seems to keep us in a place where we can get very nice infiltration. The water goes in the way that we want it to. Um, and we don't tend to get a lot. Ext- we don't get extreme amounts of, of localized dry spots. So that works pretty well from us. One adjustment we might make, one what I'm thinking about next year, we tend to see our biggest difficulty with infiltration in the spring. So I think I'm going to start with some kind of a, a, a more traditional wetting agent program right out of the gates and, and have that maybe help us uh, get started and then wean down to this approach that we've been taking where we spray a little bit every time we every time we spray. What uh, are there other uh, comments that that you haven't responded to Chris because I, I think no I got through that was kind of what I did Micah while you were away is I went through the comments and I responded to them. So we're, we're pretty well caught up, I think, on comments. So, so you answered Stephen about firmness? Yep. Okay. And uh, Randy asked about OM246 being applicable to athletic fields. Is that a new one? That is new, yep. Yeah. So uh, this is a question. I've gotten these kind of questions a lot over the past month. Uh, especially I was giving some seminars in France, for example, and, and people ask about what about the application of growth ratio to football fields or clipping volume to football. Um, so, so his question is, is OM246 applicable to athletic fields? Are you aware of someone using it and how it will help in maintenance? Um, I don't imagine uh, that athletic fields uh, are are maintaining quite the same way. Uh, I, I think it's it's sort of applicable. There was a graduate student from Michigan State University. I disremember the name right now. And I think he might be working in in the Denver area. And he's written he his uh, I think his master's or or I think it was a master's thesis, maybe a PhD, was about this type of testing on athletic fields. Um, I'll make a note to share that and and that. Uh, there was also, I think, an article in the Sports Field Management magazine, so in the Sports Turf, about about this type of testing for athletic fields. Um, so the the question is, do I know anybody using it? Uh, not really, but I I do have uh, one thesis and and one article that I can share, and uh, that may be interesting for some people. You know, I was um, I just had a thought. 
and Jeff asked Jeff Whitmer asked about um, about use of wetting agents, and it, it it struck me that our OM two numbers have been very consistent, as we showed earlier, and it struck me that our the way that we experience um, drying on the greens. Um, some trouble with localized dry spot in the earliest part of the year, but then able to kind of get through it and then experience good conditions with the type of wetting agent program that we're using. That's been very consistent as well. So to me, um, you know, I, th I think there's something to the idea that when those, when those OM2 numbers are staying consistent, we're seeing the same kind of reaction um, from things like infiltration, things like using a wetting agent, um, there was a firmness question while you were away, Micah, um, from John Rowland about, um, or maybe Steve Henderson, did you, you know, whether the firmness has gone up? And I said, you know, what I've noticed about firmness is that it's just very, very consistent. It hasn't continued to go up as the years have gone on, but it hasn't gone down either. And it's very consistent from both, um, you know, in wet conditions and in dry conditions. Uh, and, and that's, that's what I'm seeing. And I think, so I think there's some, there's something to the fact that those OM2 numbers have stayed so consistent and all of these things that we would think are relevant, um, to that are, are also staying consistent. I think that's, there's something, there's something to that would be my guess. Excellent. Well, Chris, uh, we, this has gone on for a long time and we haven't gotten very far through the report. Should we try to skim through the report and quickly? We, we can, we can skim through the rest of the report. Yes. Yeah. So because, because there may, there may be a few people out there who are saying, are sitting there saying how they've talked about, what are they? They're way off topic. When are they going to get back to the report? Yeah. So <laughs> let me, let me see if I can open that. And get that set up to share. And what did I? I had that set at like three hundred percent zoom, something like that. Yeah. So um, now I'll try to share my screen. Ooh, not now. I have the same problem you do. There we go. Okay, Chris, I I can now share my screen. I'm back at the table of contents of the report. We looked at some of the summary charts. I'm just gonna keep going through this and then you jump in, Chris, when okay. when when you think there's something that you want mm -hmm. to to mention. Um, so I start off showing what I think is most important, which is the time series. And then uh, we look at that time series broken down by, um, by depth. And then we show what I think is the most interesting chart, which is the comparison to other uh, surfaces of the same species. And then I show a big scatter plot. So this one I haven't shown uh, yet. Uh, so I put your individual greens on a scatter plot by depth. Um, and you can see, for example, on putting greens, if we look at all the species, I've had up to about 22% total organic material in the top 
two centimeters and the lowest i've only had one sample ever that's less than two percent um but it it's interesting about the 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 different species uh what would be normal which is why i break it down by species um and and break it down by depth and i think by depth it's just like do you need to be punching holes and putting sand down or not and then i also combine all of the the layers and look at what the total six centimeter depth uh total organic material is and so for bent grass greens the average is a little bit over three percent that's from the zero to six centimeter depth and you're you went 2.5 uh 2.9 2.9 percent 2.9 so it's staying it's staying really consistent that's also like a flat line so that's all the charts and then i jump into the summary tables so some people like to look at tables and you see you can look at what your minimum maximum and average was for all of your sampling dates it's it's worth when we look at the individual samples it's always worth noting and i know you have said this uh multiple times that if i were to rate the the six of the six greens that we test at the two centimeter depth if i were to rate them and say which ones are the the best greens just from appearance uh not necessarily playing conditions, but just appearance and just turf, rating the turf. The I rate the ones, the ones I would rate higher are the ones with the higher organic matter. The ones mm -hmm. I would rate lower have the lower organic matter of the six. And that's been very consistent through the years. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have that kind of result. Uh, so I guess the question is, uh, it would be interesting to look at how that works out for fine fescue. Uh, if, if fine fescue is also better at, at higher or lower, uh, within yeah. the range that's suitable for, for fine fescue. Um, so we definitely have a range. Uh, and then, so I, I just provide all this data and then I think it's interesting to look at the data summarized by species. So this is something that I, I, I'm able to summarize and it's, it's updated on every report based on the, the newest information that I have adding into the database. So for fescue, it's definitely typical. We talked about that a little bit with Stephen, but, um, the, uh, the average that I've found for fine fescue greens, which is mostly from band and dunes, uh, the average is 4.8% in the top two centimeters and seashore paspalum uh, also for me it comes in pretty low it's interesting in the usga project they don't have so many paspalum greens um, but their paspalum greens were a lot higher but the way seashore paspalum tends to get managed in asia which is where i've i've got these data from uh, from from philippines and thailand maybe I can't remember if there's some from Malaysia or not in that data set, but um, seashore paspalum greens in Asia tend to get frequent top dressing and, and that keeps their organic material pretty low. Uh, and then I summarize for the zero to six centimeter depth and then I summarize it by species for the zero to six centimeter depth. And then we move on to something that's a little bit new 
which is sand fractions. And this is kind of interesting. Um, let's see, where's that first chart? This, this one's interesting, Chris. Maybe we'll talk about this just a little bit. Yeah, I think this is worth talking about for sure. So um, a lot of people are concerned. They're like, okay, if I don't put sand top dressing, if, if I reduce the amount of sand top dressing, maybe I'm going to start having fines accumulate at the surface and, and you know, fi very fine sand or, or clay and silt. And that the idea is that that might need to be diluted by. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm going to pause that and, and, and show John's comment real quick. John, John shared the data, the seashore paspalum data in the U S they have 12% on average for the top two centimeters, which is just a, a, a shock to me that they come in so high for seashore paspalum. So I, I don't know what the difference is in management. Um, but I've measured it, uh, multiple courses in Southeast Asia and, and we just don't get those kind of numbers, which may be because seashore paspalum grows. So, I mean, Seashore paspalum is just the wrong grass generally for Southeast Asia. And I've, I've written about this extensively. Uh, I think maybe it's just too hot. Maybe it just doesn't grow so well. And maybe when you get a cooler climate like Florida or, or the Southeastern United States where seashore paspalum is used, it could be that it just grows better and it's a, a healthier, stronger grass and it produces more organic material where it's kind of struggling to stay alive in, in Southeast Asia, perhaps. Um, so that, that's something for further study. So anyway, back to the sand fractions, uh, and, and fine material accumulating. Some people are concerned about that. Uh, and so I said, you know what? I really don't know if that's something we should be concerned about or not. So why don't we start measuring it after you burn off the organic material from the sample? It's easy to pass it through a sieve and we can then check what the course sand fraction, the medium sand fraction, the fine sand, the very fine sand, and so on, is at very specific depths in the soil. So I thought that would be kind of interesting, and it would be interesting to track that over time. And so um, we have, uh, so I've started doing that, and uh, this is the type of thing that we look at. Yeah. It's, as I look at this, and and you, you're going to, you may be looking at this in much greater detail, but um, correct me if I'm wrong. The green, the green portions are the USGA uh, mm -hmm. becks, correct? Yeah, the uh, the USGA recommendations for a method of potting green construction has, I think, table three, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, there's a table that uh, that has you know the the recommended levels at each sieve size. And so the green points on this chart show that uh, yeah. if it's within or without. So a quick glance at this to me just tells me that with the exception of the very fine sand, you know, we're, we're pretty close to where we would want to be uh, on this. But mm -hmm. I suppose that, you know, some people might say that the very fine sand accumulation is what might be potentially concerning so well that's not showing accumulation because it's not showing over time i'm or, sorry yeah i'm uh i'm trying to see if i showed 
Yeah, so here we are over time, Chris. Uh, uh, I just wanted to check and make sure I could find that. Um, so here's another chart on the report. So this this shows over time. So yeah. my my idea with this is that these, if you're concerned about not having the sand fractions, the particle sizes, the way that you want it, and if you're you're either concerned that not top dressing is going to cause that to be a problem. Or if you're adding top dressing and you want to make sure that you are changing it in the desired direction and you want to make sure that your sand top dressing additions are having the desired effect, then by checking this over time, you can, you can find the answer to those concerns or find the answer to those questions. Mm -hmm. And so this shows, um, this shows exactly what's been happening. And, and so specifically what's been happening is the fine gravel has stayed flat. The very coarse sand has stayed flat. Um, the coarse and medium sand is gone down just a tiny bit. The fine sand most recently went up a tiny bit. The very fine sand has been trending up just a little bit and the total fines only most recently in October, it, it popped up above the recommended amount. So, mm -hmm. but the, I, the, it, it seems almost certain that with the sand that you've applied this autumn, that it's going to bump back down into the desired range. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this is not something that I've ever, that I've yet had to, um, take action on, which, which I guess kind of goes against my, my general principle of not finding it useful to collect data unless it's something that we can use as a decision-making tool. Um, but this seems like it's so important to know what these are, especially mm -hmm. if you're going to make um, changes in the way that you do sand top dressing. And, and you, you know, you've, you've mentioned wanting to maintain the integrity of, of the USGA putting greens. Yep. Uh, so it seems like this this could eventually become a standard thing that people do because it it is kind of useful to look at this. Yep. Um, let me see. I'm I'm gonna search around and see if I have that one more chart where we can compare with your top dressing sand. I thought I I thought I put some charts on here that had your top dressing sand as a as a line, and then you can see how the yeah, here it is. Okay. I'm going to show one that shows your top dressing sand, Chris. Um, so th this one's kind of cool. Um, this one, we're looking at a chart that shows the change. Uh, no, this is not showing change over time. It shows the, the change by depth. Okay. Uh, it shows the very coarse sand by depth for example and it's got a blue line on it that shows what your most recent top dressing sand physical analysis was so yep. if we look for example at the very coarse sand which is at the top center um the very coarse sand is about seven percent in the four to six centimeter depth and it's only about two and a half percent in the zero to two and the two to four I wonder why that might be, Chris. 
maybe mower pickup. Yeah, that would seem to me to be the biggest reason why that would be an issue potentially. Well, I mean, it's it's not an issue, but it's just not it's, not issue. It, but the biggest reason for that being the case would be, mm-hmm. that and then you the see the particles are yeah, and and so you see the top dressing sand is pretty close to what it is at the four to six centimeter depth, but you can see that at the zero to two and two to four centimeter depth, you're you have less very coarse sand than you have in your top dressing, mm-hmm. which is it's interesting to know that that's happening. As far as coarse and medium, they're very similar to the top dressing. Mm-hmm. And then the fine sand is a little bit more than in your top dressing at all three depths. So um, it's it's interesting to look at that, compare it to your top dressing sand. And, and I imagine for a lot of turfgrass managers who are really, really trying to do everything they possibly can to have the best uh, growing environment and the best uh, playability. This type of comparison between what the top dressing sand is and what the particle sizes are at different depths, and and comparing that to playability uh, is is going to be something that that people will find useful. Yeah. So, um, let's see. I don't think we don't have any new comments, do we? Oh, uh, one Randy just. Had oh yeah. A- okay. Here we go. Randy. Randy asks: Is is very fine sand decreasing the infiltration rates? You're not measuring the infiltration rate, so we don't know. But uh, yeah, almost certainly, almost certainly it does. If if you if you increase that, then the de- infiltration rate should go down. I've wondered about very fine sand and. Um, whether some of that, and I have no idea if some of that is just coming from the environment, wind blowing dirt around and blowing, you know, just what, what do you think, Mike? Is that could, would that, could that result in an amount that would be actually show up on, on these, in these? Yeah. I mean, it's, at some point I, I don't know enough about it to say if, if that would show up in in four years or if it takes 400 years for the amount. Yeah. Uh, and, and it must depend on the location. But the, yeah. the, the idea is to check it uh, and, and, and to, to find out what's happening at your site. And I know a lot of people change top dressing sands um, or, or they change the, the tools and the machines with which they're applying it. And people are always trying to improve and do things in an even more efficient way uh, and and find better ways to get even better results. And I think this type of checking both what's happening by depth, what's happening by particle size, what's happening with particle size over time, what's happening with particle size at different depths in comparison to what the top dressing material is, can really just... I think as a turfgrass manager, it gives you so much information that you feel like you're totally understanding what's going on. And you're like, okay, next year I'm going to do this. Uh, I mean, I, I guess, I guess eventually we will start making some, some, uh, some actionable, uh, decisions. We'll, we'll start making decisions based on this. Cause it's like, you know what? I don't like the way that's, that's going. I'm going to change my top dressing sander. I don't yeah. like what's happening at that depth, I'm definitely going to 
going to introduce some more sand down to that depth. Well, let me, let me, uh, let me show another, see if I can share my screen. I'm going to try one more time. I'm going to try this. Uh, here we go. So this is the process that we did when we aerified this year. Can you see that, Micah? Uh, I sure can. Uh, and one thing that we discussed briefly is that maybe this sweeping process, in fact, you can see where the cursor is here, is some of the larger crushed uh, component you, of this sand. Just in Go case ahead. somebody in the future is listening to this and not yes. watching, can you describe yes. what your picture shows? Okay, my picture is of a process that we used to fill the holes when we aerified this summer, which is uh, hand brooming the sand into the aerification holes. And it's a picture of the sand sort of spread out with like a windrow or piles on the on the end. And what I'm showing with my mouse here, my pointer, is you can maybe see, depending on the resolution of your screen, you can see that maybe some of the larger pieces are separating out here a little bit. So as we did this process, um, I did notice that we were seeing some separation and some uh, segregation of the larger particles. And I wonder if maybe what's getting left behind or what got left behind through this process wasn't a more fine textured uh, sand, um, which could have been part of that change in uh, uh, change in the... Uh, the in the in the fines yeah it, potentially it, it it could have been and because that was kind of a different process this year and then you saw a change um it's yeah you, we don't know for sure but that's something that can be checked and and you've got yep. data now to to look at that yep all right well we're about at our uh our record time uh two and a half hours, people look at that and go like, when am I, it, for the people that joined us live, that's awesome. And uh, thanks for taking the time. For people who who look at this, that's recorded <laughs> and they say, oh, that's a podcast or that's a video of two and a half hours duration. Yeah. When am I ever going to find the time to do it? <laughs> that's daunting. It's daunting, it, it I is, guess. It is, it is daunting. I know if I look at a podcast that I like and it's that long, I, I might decide to pass but um i hope you know people will listen and maybe maybe you could record an intro to the podcast micah and tell people how you know that if they do press play you can tell them how scintillating a discussion it, it is all the way through and that they they shouldn't give up on it and they shouldn't be find that the two and a half hours to be a daunting number yeah yeah we'll we'll see it it's uh it's easy to just sit and talk about turf grass uh and and i just hope we can provide some useful information i think we started this with the typical response that that you know john kaminsky got just got right to the point uh with kind of the status quo thinking about this which is that you can't do this forever um and yet you're you're able to not punch holes and still have a suitable infiltration rate. You punch holes every couple of years, right? right. I mean, you, you skip Roughly. last year. Yep. 
and you skip 2020 maybe or not uh, i think we punched holes in 2020 i think you know the funny thing is with this this has gotten to be i know in some circles this is uh, and like the guy who doesn't airify but i've only not airified one year out of this mm -hmm. whole stretch that we've done it's it's more about not, uh, i would like to be known as the guy who doesn't do maintenance monday so that's kind of that would be the more accurate uh statement okay. Okay, the guy who doesn't do maintenance Mondays, that could be yeah. the if I have to give a title to the podcast. Oh, perfect. So, yeah. Yeah, a, a a two and a half hour conversation with the guy who doesn't do doesn't do maintenance Mondays. Okay. Uh, I I make a note of that in in case I can use that in, as a title. In cursive, of course. Uh I'm just looking at it. Yeah, it's it's a hybrid, but yeah, my my notes should be should be in cursive. Uh, it's a more efficient way to write. Um, let's see. I guess I just I wanted to make one more point uh, that, that maybe we've kind of um, I don't know that we've talked specifically about that. Um, and the the point that I like to make is that I think people should just get started doing this because mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you and I, and I won't tell you what my answer is, but do you find this, this now that you're like four or five years into collecting these type of data and getting these OM246 reports, do you find the information now, now that you have this time series, is it more valuable now? Or was it more valuable in year one or year two, or is it or is it equally valuable? Mm. And I think it's val equally valuable, but maybe I would say for different reasons. So at the beginning of this, it was interesting to just know where we were at, and now every year it's sort of. You know, as I talked about, there's a consistency to what we're doing, and we see consistent responses with the playing conditions. We see consistent responses with the firmness, with the infiltration rate, with all those things. So we get to the end of the year, and when you send the report and you say, I've got the results, I, I kind of know that those results are going to be what they are. Like We haven't ever really been surprised by them. And, and I think that that's probably... Uh, going to continue to happen but now i i find the results useful because it just confirms that what we're doing is is working um it confirms that everything i see every day during the course of the season is is what's happening so i think i find them equally as how did you say it how did you ask the question equally as yeah equally basically yeah yeah I, I mean, for me, I think it's more valuable the longer you do this. Yep. And so, so what I encourage people, if you're, if you're just thinking about this, uh, go ahead and get started mm -hmm. because the, the year one, you just find out where you're at year two, you start to get having a time series, but yep. where it's so valuable now, it's, it's very predictable. And with Kea golf club, we've now, we've now been doing this for seven seasons. And what we find is it's extremely predictable. But then 
that where it can be so valuable is if if something comes back now after five years for you, after seven years at Kea, after however many years for the courses that are doing this uh, type of testing, if you get results that come back now, after after having that time series, if it comes back and it's not predictable and, it, and something's changed, you 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 really can easily take action on that or you you know that you you may need to take action on that and in fact um grant saunders shared the data uh from down at hamilton golf club in new zealand where they have primarily brown top surfaces and he really likes uh to maintain a, a a really nice putting surface there with a certain type of firmness and their om2 went up in their recent testing by a couple percent so um so he's he now he's he's very quickly implemented some new practices uh to to change the way that he's uh putting top dressing to change the amount of top dressing and to change mm-hmm. um the tools that he's using so that he's going to get the organic matter in the top 2 centimeters back down to the level that he wants and 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 that he's had cuz he has a long time series and he knows and he also said that the surfaces after a rain aren't quite at the firmness level that he's that he wants. Yeah, and and that's where these data for me I find it uh, it of course it's equally valuable, but it potentially is more valuable um, the longer you do it. Um, and, and that's why I mean that's that's what I wanted to say. That's that's one message that I wanted to get across uh, is. Uh, and you you can't get that time series into unless you start doing this. Well, that's it. You you know you just said it's like anything. I've said this about clipping volume. You just have to start, and you have to not be worried about getting some kind of results from it or immediately knowing what you're looking at. Um, you have to start, and then you know when I look at my clipping volume charts from years and years and years, there's so much great information uh, in there about how much how much we've grown the grass and how much nitrogen has been put down. And that is really valuable when we look at, uh, you know, the types of things that, that we've, we've talked about today. And I said, well, you were on, um, kind of taking this back to the beginning, Mike, as we wrap up here, I said, well, you were, well, you were, uh, shut down that, you know, at the beginning we said, is this, this can't work forever. You know, that was the question that was posed to us or the comment that was made to us. Uh, but, I would ask the question with all the with the data that we have now is okay. Well, when, when does that change? When do we go from this very consistent sort of flatline, uh, a flatline results? When does it get to the point where it it doesn't work? I, I just I I don't I don't see that it's going to work like that. Yeah, that that's a very good point and a, and a good way for us to wrap this up. Um, so. There, of course, is is uh, more information than you can read, more information than you can listen to uh, between uh, what I write about at AsianTurfGrass.com, what I write about at PaceTurf.org, and what you write about on your Substack, and between our various podcasts and videos and so on. Uh, so uh, there's lots more information about this and we keep producing more information about this and and hopefully keep explaining it in a way that people can uh can learn from our learn from what we've learned also um 
and then I keep I keep learning too, and yeah, we keep learning and sharing it. So mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate that the people that like to come along on the ride with us and and uh, and provide feedback and uh, and and give us new ideas and and try try this stuff and let us know if it works or not. I think we're still both still waiting for the person who tries some of this and decides that they didn't like it and they quit, right? Well, Martin Martin Nilsson at Royal Copenhagen, I th- I think you know Martin also. He yeah. we we were talking. Uh we had some good conversations. He's a, a very witty fellow and uh uh he he definitely uh tried clipping volume for like five months and then he he stopped doing it but i was trying to encourage him to do it again um i think one of the problems that that people have is they're busy doing the work and they don't they don't have the spreadsheet set up like you do where they can easily put in the data and look at it so if you just have it if you just have the numbers but you're not using them Mm -hmm. i think that's a bit of an issue so I know uh, I'm going to meet Mark Cooker next week. He's uh, he's been developing a, a app that that can make it easy to input this and then display it. Um, and you know, there's Greenkeeper. Uh, the USGA has the Deacon platform, uh, and and there's others out there, uh, I suppose. Or there must be other companies working to develop these kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make it easier for people to make use of the data, and for me, that's that's not a stumbling block at at all, um, because I I write my own code that that can take the the data files and then display it exactly how I want it. Um, but for most people, they don't want. I think they're not going to spend the time developing their own custom spreadsheet, and right. so. Just collecting the clipping volume is one thing, but making use of it uh, and displaying the data and 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 gaining insights from it that I think that might be the one thing that that leads people to to stop. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I mentioned Martin being very witty, and uh, he said he really enjoys your Substack, and uh, and he gets it by email, and I'm like, well, did you know you can get my? And he said he get he like. He's like, he he hasn't seen so much from me, and he he like he gets my stuff on Twitter, and he's not sure whether the Twitter algorithm is is showing like what I'm doing and stuff. I'm like, did you not know that you can get my blog by email also? It's like Substack is just like a a, a <laughs> delivery platform, and and you can do the same thing for mine. And he's uh yeah he's he was making fun of me for that for. Uh, oh for being so so uh offended that that he enjoys getting your email newsletter but it's like oh you could get from micah too (laughs) well hopefully hopefully he's corrected uh and he's signed up for your list now well yeah i think uh people could i try to make it so people can get information however they like to um so so i try to share through many different channels but yeah one way of course is by getting uh, the full text of each blog the same day that it's posted, which you can do. If you go to the ATC website, you can sign up on the newsletter tab and, and make sure you're getting that. 
So there's, yeah, more than more than 600 people get that by email every day when when I have a new post. And you're you've got similar numbers, Chris. Probably a little bit higher, don't you? Yeah, seven hundred and fifty plus, I think now. So that's pretty pretty neat. I, most of the time, when I put something out, about it settles in at about a thousand people uh, after a couple of days. We'll have read it. So that's pretty neat. That's a lot of that's, people when you think about it. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it's impressive that you and you can you can get higher numbers than I can. So. Uh, that's why I'm I'm so grateful when you share uh, some information uh, to suggest to people that maybe they can get useful information from me too. So it's good. People can hear from a scientist. They can hear from a golf course superintendent, and and I think we can learn things by by hearing them from as many different uh, right. explanations from as many different voices as as possible. Um, yeah. Like the growth ratio thing, that was hard for me to understand at first. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so simple once you once you understand it, but it yep. it took me over a year to really understand what the what the the brilliant insight was behind that. Yeah, um, it's a great tool. Yeah, so so I, I understand. Like I, I struggle to understand new things, and and uh, and I imagine everybody does. Not not everything is going to click instantly. So it's it's wonderful that you can share information. I can share information, and and and. There are a lot of people out there around the turfgrass world who, uh, who are interested in 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 learning about these things. So it's mm -hmm. it's exciting. All right, we I think we now set a new record for the length of the live stream, Chris. I so I think so. Let's, yeah, let's close this thing out. Okay. All right. You know, I for, should I, I did want to yeah. say like yeah, go we ahead. shouldn't worry. We when we talk about how long this is, it is called office hours, and if you were to have an office hours with somebody with whom you shared a great deal of the same interests and you you would probably sit and talk about it for a long time so you know i think it's it's a-okay that we talk for this amount of time and people can decide to listen or not listen at their leisure yeah it's we we stayed on topic because on office hours you also would would talk about a range of things so we yeah. went through the report and we we took a couple tangents told a yeah. couple stories referred to a few people around the world had yeah, it's, it's cool. Uh, I enjoyed it. So thank you very much, Chris, for joining. And uh, yeah, everybody, check out the links. Uh, when I get this posted, yeah, uh, you'll find Chris's Substack and 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 various other links to, to useful information. Um, but check that out. And Chris will be announcing, I'm sure, some of the upcoming conferences he'll be speaking at. And um, so you can maybe meet him in person or, or talk with him about some of these things over the upcoming winter in the northern hemisphere mm -hmm. okay thanks chris All right thanks for having me yep bye bye thank you thanks everyone for joining for atc from chiba japan i am michael woods bye bye